a good old boy Never meaning no harm Beats all you never saw Been in trouble with the law Since the day they was born Good old boys I'm Mark Bog Beef Today we're joined by uh, Michael Lynn I don't know how to introduce you, but you're out there. Well, Michael Michael Earl Lynn, so I am a Southern good old boy. You go by my middle name. At the moment, I'm a, a freelance writer. I've, I've taught uh, as a professor of practice, Harvard and the University of Texas at Austin and Johns Hopkins. And at various points in my disreputable career, I've been the Washington editor of Harper's Magazine, a senior editor of the New Republic, uh, a New Yorker staff writer, uh, a uh, consultant at the State Department during the Gulf War. And uh, my favorite job uh, was working for one of the killer bees uh, uh, among the, the Texas Democrats in the 1980s in the uh, Texas State Legislature. They were a group of uh, Texas uh, senators who, in order to deny John Connolly the Republican nomination by moving uh, the the Texas primary in 1980 up, uh, they prevented the state house from having a quorum uh, by vanishing in the governor of Texas. Uh, <laughs> who was, and, and most of the Democrats are now Republicans, if they're still around. But but they really wanted Connolly. So uh, the, the governor sent Texas Rangers to Argentina and Alaska looking for them. Uh, and the session, <laughs> the session expired. Uh, the bill failed. And it turned out that these... 12, 11 or 12 guys had been living together and getting on each other's nerves in a, a greenhouse in the backyard of a rich Austin couple for months. So, uh, <laughs> but, but they, they, were, they, they were being cited in Australia and France and everywhere. Every once in a while, we'll have this, this like this strategy will pop up. It happened again in Texas, what, like two years ago when they, when they jumped on the plane to I think, try I to I think that avoid. was Oklahoma. Was it Texas? Uh, maybe it was Texas. Uh, Everything west of the Mississippi. Well, this is, this is an old Anglo-American tradition, preventing a quorum. Uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln in his 20s and his fellow Whigs prevented a quorum before a vote by uh, climbing out of the second story of the Illinois State House <laughs> and, and running away. You, you didn't teach him. You didn't teach him that that dirty stuff where you were at the uh, professor at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs, uh, did you? <laughs> well, uh, uh, yeah, I think the students enjoyed it. I, I gave them practical tips, right? Because political science is neither, uh, as I like to say. We wouldn't want to sully the good reputation for like even-handed dealing of Lyndon Baines Johnson. He was just renowned for for, for being you know totally above board. I don't think I'm wrong here, but at that LBJ School of Public Affairs, isn't don't they like um, the state contracting staff? They have to go there to get trained, right? That was the case a few years ago. They no longer have that, uh, um, I was, to my knowledge. Uh, I was going to say that that is an, an, an like that is a I mean a lot of power. I mean because the contracting like is the the, the how the, the government does business, you know. Well, what you see, you know, I'm not going to go into details, but what you see with uh, like the law school and public policy schools, which really in their present form only date back to the 1970s, there, there are various things that used to be wow. trade schools. 
But the problem is, and I don't blame the schools, but once they are incorporated into a university, particularly a research university like, like University of Texas, what used to be just like a craft school, how to be a lawyer, right, is practical, you know, how to, how to run for office, how to govern, uh, is evaluated by uh, the central office at the university for how much it approximates being a physics faculty or a chemistry faculty. So you get this kind of absurd situation, and this is nationwide. I mean, it's not any particular uh, university where, uh, you know, basically they're evaluating uh, like lawyers and, uh, you know, former congressional staffers and so on for peer-reviewed publications in social science journals that nobody reviews. So uh, I, I think I wrote a piece about breaking up the university for a tablet magazine some time ago. Uh, and I, th- I, I think that's what we should do. The, these, for example, why are there, there departments of art at universities? There used to be ateliers, right? You went and you mixed paints for the artist. So you were an apprentice. That's how you learned to be an artist or a painter or a sculptor. Uh, <laughs> why would you no. have MA programs or MFA programs in writing, right? Yeah, you know, we like I we know people that, and, I, and like, look, I don't, I'm not, gonna, I'm not blaming them or anything for this, but like, um, college is like a lot of fun right now, right now, you know, for for the for a lot of the people there. But if you ask any of the people that are there, like who we like, society needs to be there, like engineers right. or med school. Nobody's like, oh, I loved med school. Uh, you know, I was I was talking about the other day, and I got a message from a guy who said, uh. He said, like, in his alumni network, they don't say when you graduate. They say when you got out. And they, 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 they were engineers. And, they, you know, that's how it is. But, uh, but you know, it's, it's, it's become uh, this other thing. There, there's uh, – there's, I, w- I wanted to talk about something today. And, it, like, I, it'll be a little – I'm not sure how difficult it'll be. But uh, we'll have to take a couple – like, Two stops before we get to the main topic, which is essentially your your article from 2020, the Revenge of the Yankees, which was uh, it's it's in tablet, it's it's awesome. Like I mean, it, the it, it's it's really really good. Uh, I'm tempted to just read the last paragraph right now, but I think I think I'll wait. Um, well, yeah. you can succumb to temptation at any time. <laughs> okay, okay, I'm just going to do it because this this is very punchy. This to set up where we're going. <clears throat> What we are witnessing is a power grab carried out chiefly by some white Americans against other white Americans. The goal of the new woke national establishment, the successor to the old Northeastern mainline Protestant establishment that was temporarily displaced by the Neo-Jacksonian New Deal Democratic Coalition, is to stigmatize, humiliate, and disempower recalcitrant Southern Catholic and Jewish whites along with members of ethnic and racial minorities who refuse to be assimilated into the new national Orthodoxy disseminated from New York, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., and the prestigious private universities of New England. Properly understood, the Great Awakening is the revenge of the Yankees. <laughs> now, uh, let's. I just want to go straight into it because, like, there, there's the first step of this thing because this is always like kind of controversial and a and uh, a loose a loose topic is. Um, can we define? I, and I think this is. I think this is. Uh, relevant define the wasp and i don't think the wasp exists like he did so we will be talking about like history here basically but 
the wasp. And and I and I'm sorry. I'll, I'll step aside. Well, well. Uh, let me put this in context. My most recent book in 2020 was uh, the new class war saving democracy from the managerial elite. And there I followed uh, James Burnham and Bruno Ritzi and and various others uh, in arguing that Marx was right that bourgeois capitalism was on the way out, but he was wrong that thing, state socialism was on the way in. It was replaced by uh, what Adolf Burley and, and Gardner Means called managerialism, managerial capitalism, uh, where you have credentialed, you know, now university credentialed uh, professionals running these vast bureaucracies, not only uh, private corporations, but nonprofits and uh, government agencies as well. Now, this has happened in every advanced industrial society. I think it's simply a permanent condition of industrial civilization. In, in uh, communist countries, in uh, Latin American countries, in, in Europe, in Asia, and so on. Uh, however, the managerial elite in a particular country usually draws upon some prior regional or ethnic or religious elite uh, in that particular country. Uh, so if you look at the managerial elite of Britain, there's a, a great deal of social continuity between the, uh, the southeastern English uh, upper classes and professional classes in, in the bureaucracies, say, of the BBC and modern uh, government, which are giant bureaucracies compared to what they were 100 years ago. Uh, uh, as a Texan who, who spent 30 years uh, in, in New York and D.C. and in, in you know, fairly elite circles, it was quite striking to me that uh, the, the old wasps proper, which is not Anglo-Americans, there are a lot of Anglo-Americans Anglo -Americans in the South, are not wasps, even though they're white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Uh, the, the term wasp yes. was coined kind of satirically by a Digby Baltzell, uh, uh, an American uh, sociologist and social critic. Uh, but essentially, you know, maybe Puritans would be a better word. It's Mayflower people. That, oh my! That, that, that is so perfect. I, I literally in the last week I, I was I had this conversation and I said and I was struggling and I and I said Mayflower people because in, in like uh, in the thing I'll just uh, I'm gonna cut to the the second part here for a second to show you where I was headed with this is uh, so I I really like uh, Boss Tweed and there's a moment you can see in Boss Tweed's early career. Where he's uh, he's a young man and he and he's he, he's he's tough. He he knows he's smart. He's he's uh, he's very good with uh, accounting, which is like you know the uh, the 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 computers of the time. Basically, uh, he's really got it all, and he sort of shows up to these these uh, whatever you know. I think at the time things like the Masons, the Know Nothings, and I'm sure lots of these. The, the, they had all these like country clubs and these these complex uh, manor bun type things, and he would sort of present himself. And I don't think he understood. Like, uh, and so you know, at the end of the story, Boss Tweed basically he they don't want him, and he ends up uh, having to start his political career uh, organizing uh, organizing Catholics or something. He is not Catholic. Yeah. He is he is in fact white, Anglo-Saxon, and Protestant, but he is not a wasp. Yeah, it's a class thing too, you know. Uh, so, uh, a lot of the artisans and mechanics 
in New England and, and Boston and New York and Chicago in the 18th and 19th centuries were just lower class Anglo-American Protestants. You know, so so there's got to be a let's call them Mayflower people. Uh, that, that's perfect. And and, uh, and and the people who assimilate. So Mayflowerism is a culture. It's it's it can become detached from heredity. Uh, so uh, one of the, the most exquisite wasp I ever knew was a Jamaican American friend of mine in Boston, who had just totally absorbed that culture. I mean, it was amazing. Uh, he was he was waspier than the wasps, uh, and and I think what has happened in the U.S. in in my lifetime is we went from a country with uh, different regional elites, which were Anglo-American Protestant mostly, uh, but they were not Mayflower people. And then, really, in a fairly short period of time, I'd say between the '90s and the present, uh, this Mayflower culture which is propagated by two institutions, the, the national universities and the uh, national foundations. In the national media, maybe, maybe throw that in as a third. This is now the national elite culture. So uh, when I was growing up in Austin, uh, nobody went to the Ivy League if you wanted to be in the Texas elite, right? You, you went to UT or to SMU or Rice. Why would you go to Harvard or Yale, right? That's like going to the University of Tokyo. And you had no particular advantage. If anything, you suffered uh, if you went to Princeton or Harvard or Yale, and then you came back and wanted to be a lawyer or a, a business manager in Dallas or Houston because you, would, you wouldn't fit in socially. Uh, if you were in Louisiana, they, 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 like, they couldn't teach you how to do law in Louisiana, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so... Uh, uh, and really, within one generation, the uh, basically the what had been regional schools that, let's face it, were, were training the frat boy uh, sons and sword girl uh, daughters of the local gentry, uh, local Anglo-American gentry, in the South and the West and Midwest, uh, just became assimilated, you know, like by the Borg in Star Trek. Uh, and so at this point, there's really very little difference a- apart from the football games. You know, UT is no different from UCLA, which is no different from, uh, from you know, Tulane. Uh, and it's just it's a completely homogeneous uh, culture and it's created a homogeneous elite. And you see this in, uh, in accents. I'm, I'm speaking... I say English is my second language, right? I grew up with a very thick accent like this, but everybody had it. And uh, the children of people with Southern accents in, in their 60s and 70s in West Austin, their their sons and daughters have Valley Girl accents now. It's kind of the national elite accent, you know, where you like, you know, the up, what do they call it, up talk? Like mm-hmm. this, you're constantly going up, like a question mark. Uh, so, so this is amazing consolidation and, and, and what set me at odds with analysts of the Trump phenomenon and the, and the Bernie Sanders phenomenon as well was I had this great fly on the wall position because, uh, for 30 years on the East coast, people thought I was a wasp, right? Cause I'm blonde and blue eyed and, and, uh, 
Uh, in Texas, I'm not terribly tall, but in New York, I could see over everybody's heads, right? Because uh, of the Italian and, and Jewish and Greek Americans. So they always assumed I was some old Mayflower person, you know? And, and once I dropped my Texas accent, uh, it's sort of like a spy. And, and the fascinating conflict in, in all of the Midwest and New England is between the so-called white ethnics and, and the Mayflower people. Uh, a friend of mine interviewed a, a Republican matron, very waspy lady, in the 1980s and, and asked about their diversity efforts. And she said, oh, yes, we've reached out to many white ethnics, Catholics, <laughs> people like that, you know. Uh, so, so it's fascinating to me. And, and I don't think you can understand what's happening in the U.S. in this white, black, Hispanic framework. So when I, I moved to the Northeast in the early 80s, uh, there was this definite hierarchy where the Mayflower people were on top and you were not going to rise very far if you were an Italian-American Catholic or an Irish-American Catholic. Uh, and a friend of mine who was with an Irish uh, Catholic New York father and a Southern Tennessee uh, mother uh, had to pass himself off as an Episcopalian. He had happened to, to go to an Ivy League school and had to listen. This was in the 70s and 80s. Listen to the old uh, WASP you know, partners in the bank go on about the mix and the WAPs and the kites, right? So this was not all that long ago. Uh, and then suddenly within really almost like a decade or a generation between the 60s and, and the 80s or 90s, the white ethnics go from being this kind of middle category where you have the Mayflower people at the top. You have the, uh, this is within that region, okay? The Southerners are another country, all right? But this is within the Northeast and Midwest. Then in the, in, the, in the middle, you have the Poles and the Italians and the Irish and the Jews and the, the Greeks and, and the non-wasps. Uh, and then at the bottom, you have blacks. There weren't that many Hispanics at that point. Puerto Ricans they had. Uh, so, so my heart went out to these white ethnics because in 1970, uh, they were like white ethnics being discriminated against by the you know, country club Republican Puritans from the old, old, old families of East Anglia. And then by 1990, they were privileged non-Hispanic whites, right? Yes. They, they, never, they never had their civil rights era moment. You know, we host a weekly show where we read the news, and <clears throat> there's a me, Scott's Irish guy from the Deep South. There's my co-host here, Merrick. He is a uh, a Cavalier Virginia Southern, and number three is a Italian guy from New Jersey. All of us, all of our grandparents voted. Uh, you know, and all of our grandparents voted Democrat. Right. Obviously, uh, you know, and and. You know, there's there's this funny thing coming around where it's like, you know, the the wasp stuff. They're now the Democrat side. We're now the Republican side, and it's just very funny how this. You know, I guess there's some that time period. Uh, you know, you got the '60s, and there's George Wallace, and he's carrying the South, and then this happens, and that happens, and all of a sudden, whoa, we're we're all we're, we've all flipped around. Well, Murray Rothbard, he's kind of crazy libertarian, but but he's a brilliant guy in many ways. So he had a theory that the real division is not between left and right in the U.S. It's between the pietists 
that is the Puritans and some of the German and Scandinavian pietist Protestants, and the non-pietists, the Lutherans, the uh, uh, Catholics, the, the evangelicals, uh, and so on. And, and whether you agree with that or not, I, I, I do think that if you look at American history, uh, you know, the only reason this country is here is because the British really screwed up and alienated the Southerners. Uh, because otherwise, the Southern, to this day, they're still very Anglophile. Uh, you know, it's very easy to see the alliance between Boston and, uh, and Richmond just breaking apart, right? Uh, and, but it managed to, to hold. Uh, but as I like I to... I mean, there, there was military conflict between, the, between colonists during the English Civil War. It wasn't a lot of it, but like there, were, like, there was a straight-up shooting war between people who were loyal, still loyal to King Charles and... Oh, oh yeah, and particularly in, in, the hill, in the hills, uh, yeah. uh, where there were a lot of Tories, uh, just because they hated the lowland uh, planters in some cases. So, so it was a real civil war. Uh, but the way I put it is, there are only two groups... Uh, if you if you accept African Americans uh, and uh, New England Puritans, Calvinists originally, uh, every other group came to the U.S. basically to either be left alone or to keep doing what they've been doing in Europe or wherever, except with more money and like a pickup truck, right? Uh, you know, they they <laughs> they didn't come to the New World to like lead global democratic revolution they just came to get rich or be left not be persecuted for their religion uh the puritans of new england are the only uh group in in american history to my knowledge that moved to north america because the old country was too free (laughs) and they were having too much fun yeah, the Massachusetts Bay Colony was, uh, was kind like, of a nightmare. They were like the Ayatollah, right? You know, like yeah, you know, going. I, so uh, you know, I've got a, I've got a. So I, I guess there's a theory about this. So you know, this 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 wasp thing, and uh, you know, there's a there's a movie that's from like the '90s or something. It's called uh, Born Rich. And it's it's about uh, Jamie Johnson. He's like an heir to one of these uh, Johnson and Johnson for uh, a fortune. And he's and uh, there's a there's a moment where one of the, the the daughters she takes her Jewish friend to the country club, you know, and and uh, and she jokes. She's like, you know, this the, I couldn't have done this, you know, uh, thirty years ago, forty years ago. And now this this thing, this wasp thing, like I, I I'm not like. I think that it had relatively uh, uh, good intent. So good intention. So you know, this, there's this like there's a class like thing that comes out of the the wasp. You know, they have this the very knowledge economy thing. This uh, big into education and stuff. Well, you know, they had religious reasons. They thought if you if you couldn't read, you you were going to hell. They they believed uh, you know in these you know th- this this thing about the committees and stuff they don't like hierarchy well you know that that came out of uh, religious stuff you know I I, I guess just straight up uh, I don't know if it's just a direct rebuke to the the Catholic Church whatever but you know uh, the, the people come together and make decisions as a group all this stuff but then you know like the Jamie Johnson thing happens where you know the, I don't know when was the last last wasp like go. Uh, mayor of Boston or governor of Massachusetts 
I, it may have been a long time. This this thing that that was, and you also had these people. Uh, you know, they they knew who they are. They they printed. They were you know you had to be in the daughters of the American Revolution. You uh, the way you like specifically determined who your wasp who was the wasp was how many Mayflower descendants you had, right? Yeah, and look, I, I, I admire them. I'm glad they conquered Texas and the Confederacy. You know, otherwise, mm. you know, like Austin would be like Tegucigalpa today, you know, with these broken down Southern colonels running things. Uh, <laughs> we'll have to agree to disagree on that one but, uh, a little okay. bit. Um, it's, all, it's all right. We're, we're, we, uh, we love the South here. No, but you'll see, the, you'll see my point. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not anti-Southern. So I see the Puritans, like, particularly when they were really intensely religious, you know, in the, mm-hmm. you know, from uh, uh, the Mayflower all the way up to even the social gospel early 20th century uh, and, and the abolitionists and all of that. I see them as a middleman minority, to use uh, Amy Chue's term, uh, Amy Chue of Yale Law. Uh, and that term, she, by that she means these groups like Jews in Europe, like the overseas Chinese in Southeast Asia, like Indians in Africa, uh, Hindus, where you get kind of like a middle class from one from the home country, and it moves to these you know kind of less developed countries, and uh, they tend to become the they're they're more literate, right? And they have this usually a religious and ethnic uh, homogeneity, and so they end up making lots of money, and they don't and they don't dissipate it because they're ascetic, they're disciplined, right? Uh, compared, compared to the free spending dueling aristocrats and the and the local peasants, uh, and so that way you have pogroms against them now and then. So the the real problem with the wasps is, uh, and you see this with uh, you know my other side, Scandinavian Americans do very very well uh, in the U.S. Even though most of our ancestors were starving illiterate peasants a uh, hundred years ago, and, and a lot of it has to do with very pious Protestantism of a kind that does not exist anymore in Sweden. Uh, uh, but the problem is, you, you, if you're a middleman minority, you cannot run a country of 330 million people as though it were Salem, Massachusetts. It's not going to work, right? Uh, mm-hmm. but even before modern diversity, even the diversity we had in the 18th and 19th century, it, I mean, it's as though... Uh, the the uh, an Indian friend of mine tells me the Patels in India uh, are are kind of a minority like this, uh, and uh, who are the Zoroastrians? The Parsis, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, if if you and they're overrepresented in the commercial elite and educational and so on, and it's kind of for the same reason. Uh, they're they're these very educated, industrious minorities. Uh, but if you tried to impose Parsi Zoroastrianism on India, then, you know, it would, it would just be civil war. Uh, and and uh, uh, so I, I think that that's the real problem. It's also a problem, by the way, for the Southern tradition of classical republicanism, because I think that makes the same. It, it's a matter of scale. This is something yes. that I think is not thought about. Just as you cannot scale up the Massachusetts Bay Colony to 330 million people, a third of a billion people, uh, 
you can't scale up Athens or Republican Rome. It doesn't work. Yeah. Okay. Oh, it has to be said, for, for one thing, that okay, when we're comparing like the Massachusetts Bay Colony and Jamestown Colony, it's not like the the Massachusetts Colony, when we're talking about the, the white colonists, were like outrageously more literate than their counterparts in the South, right? This wasn't both, – both of these traditions – put a great emphasis on literacy for religious reasons. Like, well, like, well, they, said, those are the Cavaliers. My Scots-Irish ancestors, I'm about a quarter Scots-Irish, they, they were not terribly literate. I, I'm not I'm not team Puritan, but you got to give them the points for setting up all these uh, what were uh, seminaries, but then became the Harvards and, and the Yales and stuff. We didn't do that. In the South. No, well, okay. No, we don't have to do that. But yeah, sure. Uh, the, the thing is, they, they from the beginning – the people who settled in the, we'll just say the Bay Colony to be nice or whatever, they're just constantly attacking neighboring colonies. Uh, they practically, other northeastern settlements that a lot of them tried to get away from them, they're just constantly uh, having sometimes open warfare with these people until the king stepped in and made them stop. Well, like that, that, did not, that was my comparison to the jihadists. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like that that was not there was no there was nothing comparable with the with the Virginia colonies, right? This is this is a, a entire like, it goes back to what you said originally. Like this is an entirely different an entirely different mindset from two different groups of people who are from the same country, but they're from entirely different entirely different traditions, right? Well, I of you know, David Hackett Fisher has these four traditions, the Quaker which yeah. I don't think is that influential. You know, other people disagree. I don't know. There, there's <laughs> the New England Puritans, the the Scots. I think he calls them the Borderers, right? Yes. And and the Cavaliers, and the two intellectual traditions were the Puritans and the Cavaliers. Uh, and I've always thought, like, have you ever seen that old? Uh, uh, spoof British history book, 1066 and all that. Uh, no. Uh, oh, it's wonderful from the 70s. It's kind of Monty Python history of, uh, of England. So, uh, so they described the, the English Civil War in the 1640s as uh, uh, the roundheads were right but repugnant uh, and the cavaliers were... Uh, Wrong, capital W R O N G E, uh, but romantic, capital W R O M A N T I C. So I tend to think it's like the planters at their best, you know, were sane. They they were just uh, pre-modern, uh, and and they were inextricably linked. Well, maybe not inextricably. Uh, there's a good book uh, by, uh, I'm, I'm forgetting his name, I'm blanking out, by an Italian historian on uh, Southern industrialization in the Confederacy. Uh, and it's quite fascinating. He argues that the Southern planters were simply one of a number of seigneurial elites, S-E-I-G-N-E-U-R-I-L, uh, including there were the Dutch patroons in the Hudson River Valley, uh, there were the French equivalents in, in uh, Canada. There's the uh, hacendados in, in uh, Mexico and the planters in Brazil. Uh, and and there's all kind of similar. They had different unfree labor systems with Indians or uh, Africans or uh, 
indentured servants from Europe, but it was a quasi-feudal aristocracy. Uh, and many of them were quite quite sophisticated, you know, transatlantic voyagers, spoke, you know, three languages. Uh, and, and his argument was that if the South had become independent, it would have developed more along uh, uh, East Asian okay. or German lines. I think it would have. I think we would be. I think we would be Italy today if 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 the we had succeeded in the Civil War. I I, I think Italy would be the best model for what. Well, what well, South well like. there, there, there's something to that. Uh, uh, I was at a conference some years ago discussing different futures for the U.S. and uh, and my group came up with. Uh, uh, I can't take credit for the name. It was a, a woman on the panel. Digitalia. <laughs> and, and it's kind of attractive because I, I spent some time uh, in Italy a few years ago. And if you look uh, at GDP figures, Italy is very poor. Uh, and tax revenues are low and all that. If you drive around in the countryside, I don't know if you've been there recently, uh, they're not poor. You know, it's, it's, you know, people are reasonably flourishing, prosperous. It's just they have this huge kind of, they have two things. They have a black market economy, so people just don't pay their taxes. Uh, but things get done. I mean, they have good infrastructure and so on. Uh, and uh, they also have the family is the safety net. And, yes. and there's another organization, I understand, in southern Italy, which plays some <laughs> safety net functions as well, but... Well, you, 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 I think you hit the you hit the nail on the head when you talked about scale. And like the, the the problem here is scale is the enemy of humanity. Like once you, once you scale everything up to a certain point, there's just there's not there's not a good outcome. It, it, it's not possible. But beyond that, like the model, this the the Civil War was inevitable, and sadly the outcome was inevitable too. Here's here's the problem: you have, uh, a, you have an economy, uh, people, whatever. Uh, that's based around industrialization, right? They're, they're tr- what's their goal? To cram as many factory serfs as possible into a small area, and you know, go, you, need, you need to make textiles for you need to make steel, right. and you have this long, huge border, huge wide open border to people who are agrarian, which means I, I don't, I don't, we don't want a lot of people coming here unless they're like you know in chains. Right. It's okay to have a lot of people as long as you don't have to pay them or house them or anything. We, we, you want wide open space if you're an agrarian. Well, so you had this long undefended border. If the Italian border with, with the Germ, with Germany was like the United States border, there would be no Italy today. Right. They would be, they would be, then like, but they are, they were lucky enough to have the Alps. And unfortunately the Appalachians didn't quite, didn't quite cut it for us. But I, I think that's like, this was, this was an inevitable thing. The scale is a problem. You don't, like you're, I think you're, you're, you nailed it too with saying you can't scale Athens up to a country of 330 million people. What, what can you do if you can't, if you can't have what, what they want and we can't have what we want? Well, I always, I sort of grew up with, with these two traditions. There was the Greco-Roman classicism of the Southern elite and uh, more through my Swedish ancestors, Protestant pietism. It's like Jerusalem or Athens. Uh, but, you know, really, I, the more I think about it, I think that uh, what really happens with the modern nation states is you get an inc- incredibly complicated medieval type uh, pluralism, a pluralistic unit, and then sections of it break up, 
break off, right? Mm -hmm. So the Habsburg Empire breaks up into the Balkan states. You know, New Spain becomes all of these Latin American countries. You know, British Empire in North America becomes the U.S. and and, uh, Canada. But each of the units that breaks off is more homogeneous than the original metropolitan empire, but it's still more like a medieval kingdom than it's like ancient Jerusalem or ancient Athens or the city of Rome in the Republican period, right? Samuel Adams prayed that Boston would become a Christian Sparta with frugality, selflessness, valor, and patriotism. (laughs) Well, I I I think the problem with our Constitution, and here I really am at odds with, uh, I agree with the Democrats on some things, but but I, I really, they become total kind of Jacobin centralists now, right? You want mm-hmm. to have a 51%, we should have 50, 100% of the power. We would have totally national elections if, if, if uh, most of my Democratic friends had their way. And, you know, I tell them the problem is we only have three levels of government, federal, state, and local. But even the local is too big, Right. The city of Los Angeles, the metro area, is bigger than Sweden or Norway, right? The, the average state in uh, the General Assembly has a population of about 30 million people. That's like two LAs, right? Uh, so I, I think if, if you want to have anything resembling democracy, you would like, let's, let's take Austin. I don't remember, how, do you know how many people are in Austin now? I don't remember it's. It's the whole metro area. It's not just uh, the downtown. Seven million, something like that? Yeah, something like that. Uh, Well, the ward system in Chicago, which political scientists hate. I love it. Love it. Well, but so so there the average ward I read is uh, 50,000 people, which is kind of the upper limit, right? So... uh, I mean, it's, you know, the, the listeners can divide 7 million by 50,000. Uh, you know, let me, let me try doing that. That gives you 140 wards in Austin, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe I did my math wrong. Uh, but, That's right. Uh, and and I, I've become convinced, having spent my life in or around government, that there are diseconomies of scale in pretty much everything except infrastructure, uh, uh, you know, increasing returns, manufacturing, and, and military defense. But uh, Investigating uh, airplane crashes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks for <laughs> uh, You know, like tracing, you know, like suicide cases like Epstein, you know, things like that. Clearly, clearly the FBI is best for that. Uh, but... Uh, uh, but so, for example, if, if you have Austin partitioned into 50,000-person wards, and 50,000 a lot of people. I mean, it's not, you know, uh, uh, people you recognize, you know. Uh, but, you, but you would have the ward healers and the local ward boss and so on. Uh, there's no reason why they can't have their own school board, right? Why, yeah. why should there be a state curriculum, assuming you don't have – private schools, which I tend to favor, but, but, uh, uh, why, you know, parks, uh, to give you one of my pet peeves, you know, maybe not every, uh, street in Austin would be turned from a four lane street into a two lane, two giant bike lane 
Street with <laughs> with Korean, you know, North Korean DMZ pylons dividing the. Uh, that's one of my my since I moved back to my hometown of Austin in 2017, I, I've I've thought about starting a new sport like bird watching. It would be biker watching. <laughs> because you know, I, I have time to drive around town during the day when people are at work, and weeks go by and weekdays before I see any bikers in these endless, endless bike lanes, which have constricted traffic now by 50% on the traffic diet of Austin, a city in which 5% of people use mass transit. But Honey, honey, get in here. There's a middle-aged man in spandex. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, you know, the 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 problem you know this is like the the main theme of our show is patronage and the you know the reason this this is like they have the reason why we, we can't have this right now there has been a uh, uh this is perhaps the, the center of this war this this is like we there, there are like three things you are taught in american government schools basically you're taught that boss tweed is bad Boss Tweed was the devil. Uh, <clears throat> Huey Long was bad. Political patronage is bad. What you need is these is is you know the the, the civil service reform. It's what gave us the 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 the, be- <laughs> the beautiful uh, uh, country. And you know what I, what I always think about is you know you only have Boss Tweed when you have this corrupt guy running New York uh, New York City. You look like. <clears throat> You know, like uh, so much, like a third of the budget, at least, is goes to basically his uh, uh, political patronage. All this back scratching, this guy, this ward boss, this this ward boss, and all all this, this all these kinds of games and all this kind of stuff. However, uh, you know, he's building MoMA. He's built. He's building the the uh, the the Brooklyn Bridge, etc. Well, you have like what, what you have now, like that you have no quote unquote. Uh, uh, corruption, like there, there's literally, I don't think any, hardly anything that that happens in these huge governments. We, one of our best friends is in, is in Sweden, and you know they, they have the same thing times a hundred, where you have just thousands of these, these, these bureaucrats that are doing all these things that, but they're not building any more bridges, they're not building any more museums. I, I don't know, but but there's there's no corruption. However, all your money just sort of goes to all these bureaucrats. Well, well, it's it's worse than that. Uh, we, we have a patronage system, uh, and yes. it's based on ethnicity and race, as it was <laughs> yes. in the past. Uh, but in the in the past, the intermediary for let's say African Americans in Chicago, or or uh, you know Mexican Americans in Dallas, uh, had to deliver the goods yeah. to the people in the ward, right, or or the you know local neighborhood. Uh, By the way, they destroyed the the Irish machines, the the Italian machines. You know, there there is no more Little Italy. There's no more yeah, uh, uh, yeah, etc. But but so now, the patronage takes the form of uh, giving board seats on the basis of quotas uh, and jobs and so on to the upper middle class members of what are really categories. They're not communities, and they're actually met. Uh, the working class people of their race or ethnicity, right? Uh, and uh, so instead of having, uh, well, I'll give an example. I, I had an acquaintance who back in the 1960s used to go along around New York City in the outer boroughs with uh, Bobby Kennedy with suitcases full of cash. 
It's called yeah. walking around money, and they just gave it to Carmine DeSapio, the boss, and to the black preacher, <laughs> and you know, so on, the sainted Kennedys. Uh, and, and they made sure people voted early and often, uh, you know, and, but they also took care of them. So yeah. now, to be, uh, uh, well, let's just, okay, suppose we had the whole multicultural affirmative action system, but for the, the white ethnics, okay, for the non-British. I could be a Scandinavian American spokesperson because I'm half Scandinavian, the way, way Barack Obama is half black, right? Uh, you know, and, and, you know, I could be appointed to a corporate board that needed more Scandinavian Americans, get scholarships, you know, et cetera, et cetera, win MacArthur Prize. Uh, what have I done for my fellow Swedes, particularly the poor ones? Nothing, right? Uh, so, so we have this weird patronage system where the patronage doesn't even trickle down. It, it just, the, the intermediaries, they claim to represent people whom they've literally never met uh, and they've never even walked through their neighborhoods. Uh, unlike the ethnic representatives, I'm, I'm not a purist. You, know, I, you have patronage in every large scale society. I mean, it's. Yeah. All, all politics is ultimately patronage somehow, you know? Yeah. And in terms of incompetence, uh, you know, well, I don't know, maybe it's scale. When I was growing up in Austin, uh, we never lost electricity. There were never any blackouts. You know, water. <laughs> no hot water boil days. Right. Yeah. The, the the difference is we don't like uh, who's allowed to get to get patrons. Ooh. Obviously, you, you can. You. I mean, uh, look how much how much money is the State Department shipping out to uh, a foreign to. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So you know, there's plenty. There's plenty of, of patrons going around with, with these. But yeah. yeah, I mean, we're arguing about PPP loans and student loans and, and stuff, and we, we listeners know how we feel about this. Like at the same time, there's just billions of dollars being sent to sent to Eastern Europe for stuff that has nothing to do with any of us, and and most Americans don't care about it one way or the other. We just don't. We're not as as you phrased it before many times, my friend. We're not dealt in. That's the only difference. Yeah, yeah this is what the, the the Huey Longs, the Boss Tweeds. The uh, even even if uh, the Jimmy Hoffa's to, to some level is yeah. Well, I'm, but I'm not a real fan, as you, if you read my work, of that kind of demagogic <laughs> populism. It's a necessary corrective, you know. Uh, in, in Texas, we had Ma and Paul Ferguson, James and Miriam uh, Ferguson, uh, but but it's 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 kind of it's like the lesser of two evils since since these like Huey Long. Uh, was paid for by uh, the deduct box. Do you know what that was? Uh, uh, it was just mm-hmm. like Juan Perón in Argentina. A certain amount of uh, money was deducted from every state employee's paycheck and kept in, there was like literally, <laughs> it was literally a box. It was like a chest with chains. Yeah, this is, this is, this is all like exactly how <laughs> the mafia operated. In, in fact, he even, uh, when, when New York kicked Carlo... Gambino's uh, 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 slot machine racket out. He said, "Come on down here to yeah, exa- exactly. Louisiana as long as, <laughs> as long as I get thirty thirty percent of it." How I mean, however, I mean, you know that that is like for for some like no, 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 look, I I would have I would have supported Huey Long against the oligarchy. 
Look at LBJ is basically the same thing, basically sponsored by Brown and Root, you know, his entire career. Well, the Johnsons had their own scam. So until I was in high school, Austin in the area only had one channel, CBS, KDBC. That was the only TV channel in the middle of the 70s. It's because uh, uh, LBJ and Lady Bird owned KDBC. And uh, after he died, uh, suddenly we had CBS and NBC. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, but but what you want is uh, uh, the danger with these these uh, uh, demagogues, and it's not their fault because if the establishment is out to get them, then they're going to rely on their cronies and their families, right? But then you yeah. get this pattern that we have seen now with Trump and with uh, Boris Johnson. So so Trump comes to power with his uh, very brilliant strategic advisor, whatever you think of him otherwise, uh, Steve Bannon, uh, and Dominic uh, Cummings played the same kind of mastermind role for in the rise of, of Boris Johnson. Uh, once they get in power, the populist fires the advisor. Uh, Johnson kicked out Cummings and, and uh, Trump threw Bannon to the wolves. Uh, and then uh, Trump made Jared his prime minister and my British friends tell me that, that Boris Johnson's girlfriend was kind of running his administration. Uh, his <laughs> wife now, I think they're married. Uh, so Absolutely. It's, as I say, it's the lesser of two evils, but the alternative to both of these uh, is a system of institutionalized, I like to think of them as tribunes. And the tribunes of the people, they're not like just one messianic figure who's going to come in and rescue you from the oligarchs. Uh, it's it's institutionalized thing. It's it's the party uh, bosses. It's uh, it's the church leaders. Very important in the African-American community and the white evangelical community. And, and in the past, uh, Catholic priests. Uh, it, it, it can be like the, the legion, you know, it can be military veterans. Right. Either way, we're, 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 this, this is fixing a bit of the scale thing, but there's also this, this other problem where you have, you have these countries like Sweden where there's essentially zero corruption, quote unquote. You know, there, there's, I mean, there, there is, there's zero what we consider in books corruption. However, all the money goes to this, 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 this weird class, the bureaucrat thing where they've, uh, you know that that that's a that's a larger. Uh, I mean, discussion. I, I call it a. It's like a, it's a 21st century palace economy, and you have all the problems with with that they did in the Bronze Age with that, and like now we are experiencing the the problem that destroyed it, which is that like the, that machine is so big and complicated that it requires inputs from the farthest reaches of the globe, and it requires all these things to function perfectly, and if they break down. It, 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 it's too complex to deal with it. Well, that, that's it, why, it that's why your, your choice of Italy is a good model, too, because we're, we're now a centralized technocratic empire. Mm, no longer yeah. a federal republic socially. I mean, technically on paper, there are states and so on, but the senators in both parties get most of their money from a few cities. I've been told this by senators, both Republicans and Democrats. You know, yeah. They're technically from Michigan, but they have to fly to San Francisco and New York and uh, uh, L.A. to raise their money. And so that's the answer to. But the problem is when you have this centralized administrative structure, uh, it doesn't get 
it's, it's almost impossible to replace it with a new federal structure that makes sense. So it gets a gradual deliquescence. It's like this gradual decay of, of the former centralized structure. And that's what happened in medieval Europe, where all of these titles like Duke and Count uh, were actual military titles in the Roman army. Uh, mm-hmm. But just over time, uh, through subinfudation and through hereditary, th- these offices became hereditary on the one hand, but on the other, uh, you can buy you can buy them for twenty five hundred dollars or whatever. But but also, uh, they also had had contracts with their underlings, which was not the case when the Roman Empire was functioning. It was just a slave empire with with a you know centralized uh, 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 government. So, and this is why I, I, I uh, resist folks, including my friend uh, Joel Kotkin, talking about us going into a new feudalism. We could be so lucky as to have a new feudalism. Uh, right now, it's, it's, an, it's the centralized bureaucratic phase uh, where th- essentially all personal uh, relations and favoritism, with some justification, is but defined as corruption. But if you define doing favors for people you know as corruption, this this kind of requires you to have this permanent, you know, mobilization of society. Yes, instead of a god emperor, we have a priestly cat, a priestly class. Let me. I want to. I want to read something. This is an excellent excerpt from your article, and I asked you something about it. Here's here's the quote. The social gospel progressivism these institutions have long embraced is a two-faced tradition. One is technocratic, holding that social and global conflicts, rather than reflecting the tragic nature of human existence, are problems which can be solved by nonpartisan experts guided by something called social science. The other face of social gospelism is the irrational and rooted in post-millennial theology convinced that we are on the verge of a world peace and prosperity if only wicked people at home and wicked regimes abroad can be crushed once and for all. Yeah, and, and I think we've seen how these are two sides of the, one co- of the same coin. So the great age of the technocratic meritocracy was really from 1945 up until around... 2000, maybe a little earlier, where the the, the elite, uh, the Mayflower people were forced to share, uh, particularly with with, uh, Jewish Americans and and other academically uh, uh, more talented groups, but basically they couldn't just turn you down for jobs on Wall Street or in the Ivy League because you weren't, you know, an old lying Episcopalian anymore. Uh, And uh, you got this whole, what to my mind was a destructive buildup of various social sciences, because I think that's a, a contradiction in terms, social science. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. And then it flips on a dime, like between 2000 and 2010, to insane wokeness, right? Where it's just like crazy, uh, uh, crazy stuff. You know, we're going to get rid of fossil fuels in 10 years, you know, uh, men can get pregnant, uh, you know, <laughs> just bizarre. Uh, and uh, so I, I think if you want to have a stable society, uh, you need a, a ruling elite. And it can be a managerial elite. We're not going to go back to country gentlemen and, and ladies. Uh, 
Uh, it's going to be, you know, they're going to be corporations and bureaucrats and managers, but I think they should get a classical humanist education. I would rather have them uh, study rhetoric and Bill Letch, which my uh, southern grandfather taught. He was a co-founder of SMU in the 1910s. Uh, I would rather, that was kind of the British Mandarinate as well, right? You know, you, you uh, went to the public schools and you learned Greek and Latin and medieval history and ancient history and geography. And you were suited, you know, basically for any leadership job, not because of, of the curriculum, but just because you, you were thinking about governance yes. in the past in other societies. There's a there's a really important key in in your in your excerpt, and it's that it's rather than reflecting the tragic nature of human existence. And this is the problem with okay, it's like like you said, it's it. Sometimes people will say, and this has come up a lot over the student loan debt thing. That like the problem is people don't need to be learning he, the humanities in, in school, and like that's the the exact opposite of, of reality. No, what they really they need to actually be learning what we would have called the humanities in the past. The problem is that entire curriculum has been replaced with something that denies human nature. And once you, once you deny human nature, you're not getting an education that will be useful in any, in any practical sense because you're not going to understand how, how human beings function. What they're getting now is a religious education. It's, it's a seminary for yeah, yeah. this very specific thing that you described. And it's funny because uh, I, want, I, I, I don't do this, but I wanted to read I have a I have a person a person in my family who was in the Civil War and he wrote a memoir. It was just a little when I when I read your line, it reminded me of a passage from it. Here's what he wrote: He was at this time a guest of the Union Army in Elmira, New York. Preachers came in from the outside to preach to us. Some with good gospel sermons. Others were possessed with devils before they came in. We gave good attention and enjoyed the good gospels, but had no time to waste on old political hypocrites and would leave. I believe the Northern preachers did more to bring on the great slaughter between the states than all other forces combined. Well, uh, that, that's the thing about, about uh, the Puritan tradition. Uh, you know, some of the results, you know, uh, uh, were worth bringing about. Uh, uh, although slavery, I asked a friend of mine, uh, what if the South had accepted Lincoln's offer? of emancipating the slaves in return for pay. Uh, by the year 1900, would there be a civil war? Probably not. Uh, you know, would, would Lincoln be considered this great president? Probably not. Uh, and I'm, I'm very much a Hamiltonian, Lincolnian <laughs> in, in things like uh, manufacturing and, you know, uh, and defense, the Hamiltonian tradition. But I, I've, I've, I, partly as a result of wokeness, I've been going back to the Jacksonian tradition. It's not really Jefferson. Yeah. Hell yeah, Jefferson Jackson, baby. Let's go. Well, yes. I have a mea culpa because I used to uh, treat just the Southern agrarian tradition in general as one thing. But but I think if you, yeah, no. if, if, if you look at, if you look at uh, Martin Van Buren in particular, uh, it's very interesting that the Dutch were also outsiders. They were not Mayflower people. Right, they they were not considered the Knickerbockers and so on, and the Roosevelts and the Van Burens, uh, and so Van Buren really, when he when he helped orchestrate the the democracy, he literally believed that this was not a two party system. 
it was all of these groups that were threatened by this New England, uh, the Federalists and the Whigs and the National Republicans. And he put together this coalition of Catholics, of Dutch, of different kinds of Southerners, uh, different of, of uh, uh, immigrant Irish uh, and Germans. Uh, and it was kind of an anti-WASP coalition. <laughs> and, and in doing so, he created what I really now think is actually more important than the Constitution of the United States. And it was the mass membership party system. Uh, yes. I think if we could go back to the McGovern-Fraser Commission, which essentially dismantled the uh, parties with the conventions and the wards and yeah. all of that, and say, okay, well, are we going to scrap the Constitution of 1787 uh, or the, uh, the post-Van Buren you know, organized party system? I'd say, let's keep the organized party system. And to hell with the Electoral College and all this crap. When, when I, I wanted to ask you, uh, uh, you, you really, we talked when you brought McGovern's name. It made me think about this. You characterized the the New Deal era as uh, an alliance, you know, a Southern alliance against the against the Mayflower people who would who would run the country after the Civil War until the 1930s. And that's, I think, that's a, a fair characterization. But when Roosevelt created the Brain Trust and made changes to the Democratic Party. He kind of he kind of set in motion these changes that by like what six was probably 60, 68 to seventy two is really when the managerial elite codified their complete control over the Democratic Party. Well, yes, but I, I, the problem is there, there's a tendency to to skip over uh, to make a too rapid transition from the New Deal to the new politics, as it was called, in the sixties and seventies. So I'll give an example of that, uh, or a couple of examples. So New Deal, uh, the administrative state, yes, it grew enormously, but these were essentially industry-specific public utility commissions where they worked very – they were pro-industry, right? And they were considered corrupt, by the way, by the, the New England Republicans because the Ag Department – was in bed with the farmers. It was patronage, right? Yes. The labor department was patronage for the the, the labor unions. Uh, Adolf Burley, uh, uh, who was uh, a great old kind of Whig Federalist advisor to FDR, was an independent and a liberal and a Republican. In spite of being part of Roosevelt's Brains Trust, he never, ever voted for the Democratic Party because he thought they were a bunch of corrupt Irish and Italians and, and hillbillies, uh, uh, which they were to a certain extent. Now, the big, the big shift, and this is why the new right, when they go on about the administrative state starting, they, they, don't, they don't get the, the periodization right. I think the big break was with uh, uh, these quality of life agencies that starts with Ralph Nader. So uh, whereas before then, you had the uh, ag department, you know, and you wanted to have more prosperous farmers and you had labor and you wanted them to have prosperous car industry and so they can pay, pay higher wages. Uh, you got this kind of, they really were classic Puritans, right? They, they, they just saw this as corruption. These agents yes. were helping the industries they regulated. Oh my God, that's terrible. They're the enemy. 
They shouldn't know each, you know, the, the Secretary of Agriculture, if he sees a farmer walking down the street, it should be like skull and bones, right? He should turn around. Oh, that, that is brilliant. <laughs> that is, so that is brilliant. See, like, instead of the, the, the government agency m- pushing the industry ahead, it becomes this watchdog thing to keep it on the leash, which, like, you know, today they can't build uh, new cars because every car has to have 17 cameras, yeah. 17. Uh, oh, my God. That, that is brilliant. Well, well you know, the, the first, the model for all of the New Deal regulatory schemes, uh, and it was called price and entry regulation, you had to get a license to, you know, have it be trucking or, or taxis or airlines or whatever. And in return, you had to, you know, pay high wages and this, that, and the other. The, that, that's often good for the working man, yeah, the, by the, the, the way. The, the original model was railroad regulation. It was actually the enlightened railroad capitalists who want, who lobbied for the government to come up with an agency so that they would stop destroying each other driving down wages, wasting money, you know, on what was called ruinous competition. So, but, so Ralph Nader is, is the real villain in my view, because <laughs> he, you know, he promotes two institutions that have done enormous damage to this country. One is the independent agency, which instead of being industry specific and pro-industry, uh, is like the Environmental Protection Agency has unlimited jurisdiction, right? Uh, Senator Warren, mm-hmm. I, I know and like Senator Warren, Liz Warren, but but the Consumer Financial Protection Agency, that's a Naderite agency. If it has to mm-hmm. do with money, they have jurisdiction, right? And the EPA's mission is to stop evil, right? Yes. It's not to say how can we conserve resources while having a flourishing, you know, uh, manufacturing base. Uh, it's just to, to go out randomly. Uh, and, and so the other destructive institution that Nader came up with was the public interest law firm, uh, <laughs> which, no, but no, the, the, well, you know the whole Nader theory, right? That is because we can't trust the, uh, mm. the agriculture department, from not declaring war on U.S. agriculture, which is evil, they they should like be persecuting the farmers. Uh, we w- so we will get Congress to pass these private attorney generals acts. That's what they're called, private attorney. So that uh, usually in Anglo-American common law, you have to have standing to sue, right? You have to show that you know this conflict affects you. In the private attorney general statute. Uh, you can have no interest uh, personally or institutionally in the outcome, but you're just a good citizen. You're really a vigilante. Uh, and, yeah. and you sue the government. Now, get this. You sue the government regulators to force them to regulate the way you want them to regulate. Power, petitioning power. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and He was wrong about the Corvair, by the way. The, the, the Corvair was... Like the most, <laughs> the highest technology, like, uh, uh, I don't know, relative to time. It was like we had something to compete with the Europeans and the Porsches and stuff. It was it was an, a beautiful car. We, we were talking about, I, well, I was talking about this the other day with you and Fredo. It's like every news article that comes out that like, we're like, the federal government is doing some crazy thing that doesn't seem legal. And you get down to the article, like, the basis of this is like the 1932 Act to protect the Woodland Turn or whatever. It's like some kind of weird, obscure regulation that 
it really you can't you can't possibly imagine how you can well, go that, from that. That, was, to, that was true with the Biden executive order, which everyone has forgotten now about all businesses with more than 100 people have to have masks because of this quarantine regulation from 1900 or something like that. Uh, yeah, it's it's just uh, uh, you know people people complain about this, but you have this this flip side of you know there was uh you know a lot of I don't know uh, a certain kind of conservative someone like me you know during in terms of the Iraq War would say like well, why didn't we just take the oil you know we should just go get it uh, you know isn't that is this at that time period where like uh, you know I don't know if they say like United Fruit and stuff like this where yeah. uh, the government is like uh, we're gonna go out and, and and you know get these resources for for our for for state enterprise I, I don't think they you know they, they there's no there's no impetus to do that anymore well I'll give you my favorite example uh, which isn't just like plundering people but but it was very nationalistic so in the 1920s, the main source of uh, phosphate used in fertilizer, but also in other uh, manufacturing, was uh, bat guano from South America, yeah. from like, yes. the Galapagos Islands and so on. So the countries of South America that you know, were in the guano industry, they wanted to form an OPEC-like cartel uh, to raise the global price of bat guano, which makes perfect sense from their perspective. Uh, so th in order to do that, they approached... Uh, Wall Street uh, investment bankers to float a bond for their bat guano cartel. So uh, Herbert Hoover, uh, the then Secretary of Commerce, got wind of this. He uh, summoned all these Wall Street leaders. He said, uh, you will not uh, float bonds for any phosphate cartel because that would raise the cost of phosphate inputs for American factories. And in those days... The Wall Street leaders just saluted the Secretary of Commerce. They were patriotic. <laughs> it couldn't it couldn't work today, right? Uh, Have you heard of the the Guano Islands Act? No, no. What was that? This it's, this is brilliant. This is uh, 1856. The Guano Islands Act is the United States federal law that enables citizens of the United States to take possession in the name of the United States of any unclaimed islands containing guano deposits. So if you're a if uh, if you're a U.S. citizen, you can do like a citizen's um, uh, you know Napoleon conquering. If you find an island uh, of, of uh, bat poop or bird well, we're poop. we're kind of doing that with oil now. So the other day I was just skimming through headlines, and it says uh, uh, you know Americans attacked at oil well in Syria. It's like I guess we did seize the oil because <laughs> we have troops in Syria. And they're guarding it, and they're not there by permission of the Syrian government. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, do you think the the Gugus were good or bad? In just in, oh, I, th I think they were bad because, uh, uh, you know, they they had combination of like the the worst possible qualities, uh, like great intelligence, great virtue, and great zeal. And the zeal is the problem. There's a, you may have heard this joke. It was actually from some Prussian general, but it's oft, often attributed to uh, Napoleon. And the joke goes, uh, uh, you know, they asked the, the general, uh, who was the, what, what kind of soldiers are best? Uh, and, the, and he says, well, the geniuses uh, should be the generals and strategists because they're lazy, but they have flashes of intuition. 
Uh, so the brilliant but lazy are the generals. The brilliant and industrious should be the staff officers who translate the spontaneous vision of the strategist into an action plan. The uh, uh, stupid and lazy make up the common soldiers. And the stupid but industrious must be uh, expelled from the army immediately before they destroy everything. So, uh, so I, I think now the Gugus were not, I mean, I would, you know, culturally I would have been a Gugu, you know, or a Mugwump, I'm sure. Well, what is, what is Gugu? Good government reformers. Oh, oh, Okay. Yeah, that's 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 the enemy for us. Uh, you know, the, well, this, yeah, but you have someone like like Teddy Roosevelt was a, was a goo goo. But well, the, look, Franklin Roosevelt, if he had not been the head of a coalition of Southern Bourbons, William Jennings Bryan populist courthouse gangs, and you know, uh, white ethnic labor unions, he would have been like Eleanor. I mean, he was kind of a goo goo himself. Uh, so well, yeah, definitely. This particular conflict is kind of is, is super relevant to us. There's, uh, I, I guess this is just the southern. This there's a southern politic thing. By the way, you know, you were talking about the the the. I, I guess there's an angle of FDR betraying. You know, uh, get because you know all of our my grandparents were all everyone's everyone in the South. You know, they're all Democrat. They loved, uh, yeah. they loved the New Deal and stuff. There's there, there's a great debate between. Uh, uh, the guy from Firing Line and George Wallace. Uh, uh, Bill Buckley, that? my former mentor. Right. Yeah. Uh, there's a great debate between Buckley and, and Wallace. And, you know, Buckley is sort of accusing Wallace. And he's, you know, he's saying, like, essentially saying the South went along with the New Deal. Yeah. And now you're calling yourself a conservative. Yeah. This, this, this is a, this, uh, there, there's a, something missing here. And then there always is. This sort of still exists to this day. We're, we're in that, you know, uh, and, but sorry, I want to go back to this thing about FDR sort of um, uh, betraying. You know, uh, Bill Clinton sort of Bill Clinton did a lot of pandering to uh, the the Dixiecrat, uh, who you know the the Donald Trump voter essentially. There was a lot of that, and you know he of course signed NAFTA, which uh, to me is was disastrous, the most disastrous policy. Well, I, I, I think I think Jimmy Carter officially forgave Jefferson Davis, if memory serves. Uh, but so, you know, the Roosevelts, they were quite distinct of their Dutchness, and they would rib British ambassadors and so on, you know, both TR and FDR, saying, I don't have any a drop of English blood in my body. And, and Theodore Roosevelt's uncle was the head of the Confederate Civil Service, as you may know, because his mother was a Confederate. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, Franklin spent much of the 20s in Warm Springs, Georgia. Uh, at this, after he developed polio or whatever it was, he thought it was polio, and and he spent a third of his fortune creating a, a segregated, unfortunately, uh, sanatorium uh, at at you know his own expense for uh, children who had polio, uh, and so he, he was quite acculturated uh, with uh, Southerners of those days. I sent a, a liberal friend of mine recently an article from the Dallas Morning News. In uh, I think it was 1936, where President Roosevelt was unveiling the statue of Robert E. Lee that has just been removed, <laughs> <laughs> calling him one of the great Christians of, and a gentleman of America. So, uh, so they, they weren't uh, typical of uh, the ones who, who were more typical. I think uh, you know John Lindsay, for example, 
you know, the Nelson Rockefeller, uh, and, and, uh, there, they just never had that rapport. Uh, but again, I go back to what I'm, you know, the, the kind of the theme of this, this, uh, conversation, which is, I think you can interpret a lot of American history where the, the dynamism is coming from the, let's call them the Puritans and Mayflower people, mm-hmm. because they were born revolutionary Calvinists and the revolution changes. Now it's abolition in the twenties. It was eugenics, you know, then, you know, it's desegregation. Now it's gender fluidity. God knows what it will be in 2030. But, but, but anytime they're pushing and pushing and pushing, they're, 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 you know, trying to, they're post-millennial. They're trying to save the world, convert everybody. And then pretty much everybody else in this continental society is pushing back, right? If they have any power. And it's not that, and, but, but the weakness of their opponents is that their opponents really have very little in common apart from pushing back on the New Englanders and, and their diaspora. Yeah, the you know I, I don't like uh, in, in terms of you know uh, ruling elites. There's that word of Brahmin. I guess we, a Brahmin class. Uh, you know, the, they there was a lot going for them. They 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 were not a, a un, unarmed people. You were talking about Georgia. They had like those islands off of Georgia. They used to all go. You know, they had the, they had the social calendar in in the winter. They would go to Palm Beach and play polo. And uh, you know they, they were they were on the um, they, they had the like the thing is you could look up they, they had a book called Who's Who uh, that, that listed all all these people this this was the was by the way did you know um, who was that governor of Alaska crazy lady Sarah Palin Sarah Palin I'm not saying she's crazy but uh, she's wild uh, she's <laughs> she is the like current uh, I don't know like she's the person in politics right now that has the most Mayflower uh, heritage. <laughs> Which is, which is very interesting. But uh, the thing, the, I guess what I'm getting at, the thing is like you knew who ran America. They, they, there, was like, they, there was like a responsibility at least. You know, you, you like uh, when Huey Long would say, I, I, you know, this, this, this country's uh, not run right, he, you know, he could point a finger and say, it's the Rockefellers. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, we know, who, we know who they are. Something is ha- – do you think that something has happened where uh, I, for a variety of reasons – that something went from like a like a, a real ethnic group of people and it materialized into like an idea into like a class. Well, it was, it was meritocracy, okay? Because the price of that sense of class and noblesse oblige, which, and they had more of it than the Southern Bourbon. I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, you had to uh, engage in philanthropy and all of this if you were were a wasp and you did just, just didn't necessarily if you're a rich Texan. Uh, Andrew Jackson would buy you barbecue if you would vote for him. Well, okay. He'd let you, he'd let you <laughs> ransack the White House and take anything you can carry. You know, it is inaugural, but uh, uh, but so once, but the price of that was excluding like all of the Jews, the Irish, the blacks, the Hispanics, the Catholics, and you get a few upper class Southerners come in you know, just for diversity. Uh, uh, so Bill Clinton. What, yeah. So, so once you get into, uh, it becomes meritocratic. At that point, everyone, you know, just with some justice, thinks I'm here because I'm 
this great super genius mutant, right? And uh, I'm a self-made person, and everyone should be like me, and uh, and, it, and it's corrupt, right? And also being a conformist, that's the legacy of the 60s. Yeah, and, and since they, they quote-unquote earned it through, you know, whatever, academic achievement, they have no obligation to it. Yeah, you know, that's right. Uh, if you're the Facebook guy, you don't have to. You don't have to dress a certain way. You can tell. You know, get off my lawn. I don't know anybody. Anything. I I, I did this myself. I I wasn't a hereditary. You know, born into anything. Yeah. Whereas if if you're at Yale because your dad and granddad were at Yale, you know, and you know it, and everybody knows it, you know, then then you have some. At least you have to pretend to have a sense of noblesse oblige. There's a there's a great scene in, in this this uh, documentary called uh, uh, Born Rich when Jamie Johnson you know he's his dad's one of these billionaire wasp guys and he's recording him he hidden he's hidden recording him it's crazy that he published this but uh, and there's a there's a scene where like his dad sits him down and like tells him why you don't need to drive expensive cars and basically gives him the no noblesse oblige speech he's like you basically you you kind of owe things outside i mean it, it doesn't sound so noble but i mean he like he you know he's like people will be pissed off if you act a certain way because they know that you're born rich you know yeah it, it, it's self protective uh, i went to school with a at yale with a descendant of andrew mellon who always wore like ratty 20-year-old sweaters, had a broken down Volkswagen. You would never know. It's like one of the richest families in the country. Uh, Whereas in Texas, you know, you had the guy who struck oil on his ranch. I remember in the 80s, had a life-size 747 made out of ice for his daughter's debutante ball. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I, I like watches, and they always have like um, you know recommendation guides for what kind of watch to wear with what. And they basically say, if you're white, don't don't buy a gold watch unless you live in Miami, because Miami <laughs> Miami has all this new money. And, right. and, yeah. But see, this is why when all these people were going on about Trump is orange Hitler, you know, I said no, 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 no. He's a non-wasp. He's German and Scottish. He's a white ethnic from the outer boroughs. Yes. Uh, and his whole style; those are his clients. And those were the clients of his uh, father, so the white ethnic working class in the tri-state area, right? Uh, and they're the ones who bought his houses, and, and they're the ones who went to his casinos. And he knew that if they had to save up money for six months to go to a Trump casino, by God, they wanted gold. They wanted mm-hmm. gold and glass yeah. and Hall of Versailles mirrors and Cupid's painted on the ceilings, and uh, uh, they did not want like some refined, waspy Museum of Modern Art understated minimalist casino, right? And it's just how much of it is an act with Trump and how much is just that's his culture, uh, uh, I don't know. But, but you know, he tapped into this oppositional anti-wasp culture, uh, which is the dynamic in, in these big cities in the north, right? You would have the John Lindsay types, and then you would have, you know, even Ed Koch, you know, was kind of the outer borough populist, uh, and Rudy Giuliani. So to me, as a, as a Texan and a Southerner, it's just fascinating to watch this. And the problem with our media is they all come from, not necessarily wasps, but people have assimilated to that now universal uh, kind of Ivy League culture that is just every university now. It's been universalized. 
It doesn't matter where it doesn't matter where you come from. If you, if you you can come from rural West Virginia and you're still those people are still those people there. We we call them hick libs. Yeah, yeah. They're just, everywhere you go, they're going to be like the. Uh, did you see that movie Waiting for Guffman? Right. I mean, they're like they're in every small town. Uh, they're they're international. Yeah, you know? international. And uh, <laughs> and this is and this gets into foreign policy because I'm a realist, but there are you know cultural you know, irrational factors. Uh, and many of the uh, liberal internationalists I know are Atlanticists first yes. and, and American second. I mean, they really think there's this Atlantic, which they identify, they're, they're the opposite of the trad cats. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, the Anglospherians like Bill Buckley and the old National Review people. But it's very interesting because they see, all of these groups see the U.S. as a province in this somehow transatlantic or global uh, civilization, but they define it completely differently. So, so for the uh, liberals, it's the international, post-national, globalized, you know, gender fluid, uh, well, they call it democracy, but... They don't like democracy when it doesn't live, lead to left liberal conclusions. It's really technocracy. Uh, and the trad cats have christened them, <laughs> right, of some sort. Uh, you know, the, as I say, the Bill Buckley crowd, I knew Bill quite well. I ghost wrote one of his books and helped him with it. Uh, but they were wow. Anglo Catholics. It was kind of like the Anglo sphere, yeah. but the Brideshead revisited version of it. Me, I want to try to bridge the, like the the original question that you asked Bog Beef was like how do we get from from there to here and I in the in the article you you, you say like the, one of the, th- the three institutions that these people still control the Mayflower whatever you call them Yankees uh, universities yeah NGOs yep and the deep state and my theory about this is, is that you had this political there's always been political coalitions in America, but as you described it, there were they ran into this coalition of you know Irish Italian people. Like New York City was a democratic stronghold before and after the Civil War. You know, like it's a, we think of that as a very Republican, you know, a very liberal place, right. Republican, but it, but it wasn't. This was a big problem for them. So, what was the solution in the in the in the 30s? Well. You move, you move everything. You, you have you create the expert class. You move everything into this shadowy system that there's not really, there's nobody to point to anymore. There's no Vanderbilt. You can say, oh, yeah, that's the guy in charge. And more, most importantly, they had to open up their, they had to form their own political coalition and to bring in people who weren't the same as them. They assimilated in, into something entirely new. But the problem is the deep state model could work from 1945 until whatever date we want to say, we'll say 1980, it could work because you had a certain type of person, you had a certain competence. And, you know, the, the, the secret police is really good at their job. They can keep, they can keep order. That is possible. Might necessarily be a good thing, but it's possible. Now we have a deep state in this imperial bureaucracy that's run by people who are just simply can't do it. Even if they wanted to, even if their ideas were good, which they're not, they're not capable of running this machine anymore, and they haven't been for a long time. They're not even the same people anymore. They have there's nothing there's nothing really uniting them except this 
legacy religion that they have that, you know. Well, I, I, I you, agree with you, except I think it's bigger than the deep state. It's like the deep uh, technocracy. Yeah, I mean, the deep state at this point, I mean, yeah. I think we can all agree. Well, maybe not all, but I know that Bob Beef and I think at this point, the deep state is just a description of the government itself. It's not just the CIA. Well, but, but, no, but it's, it's also the private sector, the managerial private sector, the managerial yeah. foundations. So I, I agree with your history. I would amend it slightly to say that the moment the WASPs, it was 1890 census for the first time, Americans of British descent were outnumbered almost entirely by whites of non-British descent, mainly the Germans and the Irish, if you count them as not as, as at least English, uh, and, but, but also uh, other white ethnics. So what they did was they turned these things which do not require technocratic bureaucracies into technocratic bureaucracies, right? It's at that moment that these programs like law, which had been undergraduate degrees and apprenticeships before that, uh, they suddenly announced the Ivy League schools and the WASPs. They say you have to have a four-year BA before you can <laughs> come to Columbia Law School. Or like, take that Irishman, take that Italian, take that Polak. Uh, and then uh, they create, it's all like between the 1890s and World War I. You get uh, modernized, modern K through 12, right? You get... Uh, the ABA, the AMA, you get these modernized uh, professions. Uh, you get the civil service. Uh, just go down the list. Uh, and all of these have really, really high time-consuming educational requirements uh, to keep out the white ethnics, in my opinion. Uh, uh, African-Americans are mostly in the South, and, and there weren't many Asian-Americans or uh, uh, Mexican-Americans. Uh, so, so what do we do now? Well, I think basically you need to have managerial bureaucracy in industries with increasing returns to scale like aerospace, can't do without it, you know, or, or regional electric utilities or something like that, in defense and in, in other things. But you don't, you don't need to have a bureaucratized K-12 system. You just don't. You don't learn any better than you did in one-room schoolrooms, uh, as far as I can tell. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I, I think I think I told this anecdote on our stream one day. I well, my my grandmother passed away uh, two years ago, and we found a bunch of old papers in her in her attic, and one of them was the like her, her notebook from school when she was in a little one-room school in the mountains. Like you know, probably less than a dozen students for sure, just one-room school. And I looked at her exam, like her examination for high school, and it was harder than the exam that I took yeah, for, yeah. for the Virginia Standards of Learning in the nineties, right? In, in high school, like it was, it was, it was more difficult than that. Like for a lot of the kids I went to school with, couldn't pass that. And it's like really, you that that should be a, a wake up call if you know fifty years of progress was actually schooling in some ways was worse than it was. You know, in 1946. Well, I, 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 look, I can tell this as a professor, not telling tales out of school, but, but you know, like the the average uh, undergrad is like junior high in the 70s. I'm sorry. Probably. And, and yeah. so we now have nearly 40% of young Americans will get BAs. Uh, correct me if I'm mistaken <laughs> or if someone can look it up. 
I think in 1970, when we were landing astronauts on the moon, it was like 7% of Americans had BAs. You uh, needed to know, you needed to know uh, Greek and Latin to apply yeah. to, to Harvard and Yale back then. Yeah, and, and when, when all during Roosevelt's uh, four terms, uh, the college-educated people, who were mostly rich wasps and southern uh, bourbons, uh, voted uh, uh, opposed him. Well, not the Bourbons, but the Wasps did. Uh, he had stronger support among high school educated uh, Americans and the ones who were like a third of the population whose educations ended at the sixth grade, like Jethro Bodine. They were like Roosevelt's core supporters. <laughs> they were like a third of the electorate. But so when the third of the electorate was literally like sixth graders, we invented, with a little help from German immigrants, and I, I grant you, uh, nuclear energy and satellites and space rockets, right? So My, my grandpa yeah. uh, dropped out in the fifth grade, and he was a Superman. Yeah, yeah. So I think, no, I think really we should systematically de-bureaucratize institutions that were created as pseudo-bureaucracies just to keep people out. Uh, and by and the way you kept them out was by imposing ever more time-consuming, expensive educational yep. credentialing. So there have been some people who've proposed uh, using the disparate impact logic of civil rights laws <laughs> to make it a crime yes. To, yes. to require a BA for many jobs. His name's Will Chamberlain, right? Well, it's been floating around for some time. That I, I, yeah, yeah, I, I saw him yeah. make this case. It's an excellent case. I wanted to just ask you, have you read The Education of Henry Adams? Oh, yeah, yeah, speaking of Mayflower people. Yeah, well, I was just, you were describing, like, you know, this is the exact time period, late 19th century, turn of the 20th century, and he's just writing this long lament about how his classical education was completely worthless and he wished he had a more scientific education, blah, blah. It was like, I would, I read this and looking like you were so wrong about that. Like you're, you had the better education, but it made me think like, I don't think he wrote that cynically. I don't think that he, he I think that they, at this point in time, at that point in time in the, in the, the turn of the century, they really believed that like there was this scientific revolution that was going to happen where you could, where experts could run, could like, could run everything. You could just have be so basically have the power of God just by you know mastering nature. Well, well, technology. Well, the same thing happened in the nineties and two thousands. Yeah. All this tech bullshit. Um, exactly. And so if, back in the nineties, they put E in front of everything, right? It was yeah. E commerce and E this, and then it was cyber. And and even then, I was making fun of this. It's like, okay, let's say it's the nineteen twenties and thirties. You know, people didn't go around saying, uh, well, let's take a drive in my electromechanical automobile, right? <laughs> and all students should take courses in electrical engineering. I mean, it's just ridiculous, right? The, the, the a number of so all this STEM stuff. So long story short, I think if there's civilization a thousand years from now, uh, anywhere in the world, the generally educated humanists who have studied rhetoric in the sense of they are articulate in logic and composition and can communicate their ideas and they know history and they know literature and they know human nature through those two things, uh, 
they're going to be they're going to be running they're going to be running China and Russia and India and North and South America. It's not going to be like microwave repairers. Six years as a military officer too. Well, they know that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, because leadership. Uh, I've I've always wanted to write a book on liberal education, but it would not sell because it 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 would be you know like just too off the wall. Uh, uh, you know, liberal education uh, comes from liberales, which was the liberal, the free, right, in the slave societies of Greece and Rome. Uh, so you had the slaves, you had the uh, artisans, and then liberal education was the generalist education of the hereditary ruling class, right? I mean, they were just bred to, to uh, and I think you can have a more or less meritocratic version of it uh, that's not different. But the very idea of education for leadership is the opposite of education for specific technical skills. Mm. And, and we see this with the people who, you know, frankly, I encounter, have encountered frequently in my career in, in, in journalism and politics and the nonprofit sector. Like, you know, some brilliant Silicon Valley engineer who's very good at, you know, creating apps or something and becomes a billionaire at 30 or 40, and then decides you're going to save humanity or you know, reform the government or whatever. Uh, and they're all from very well-meaning, brighter than average people, but it would have been better if they had studied Greek and Latin, right? You, you, can't, you, can't, be, you can't be an electrical engineer and then just kind of bone up on world history and human nature and politics at the age of 40 and 50. It just doesn't work. By the way, that, that move that Henry Adams pulled where you, you get this great classical education and then you denounce it. Voltaire, his, <laughs> his parents, like, uh, they, they were going to, they went all the way. They had him, um, they hired like, uh, house help that, that knew Latin. And they said, <laughs> just everyone, everyone just speak Latin to him. So he like, we will like test to baby, create someone, <laughs> Uh, create someone in the 1700s who spoke Latin as a native language. They did that, and you know, it, it, and you know, people said, "Oh, Voltaire, you're the smartest man in Europe. Tell us, tell us what we should do about education." He said, "Well, what you really shouldn't do is is classical education. It's totally worthless." Uh, you know. <laughs> he was he was traumatized. Uh, there's a, there's a little town uh, uh, west of Austin in the German Hill Country called Sisterdale, and it was a bunch of radical socialists in liberals who fled from Metternich after 1848 and came to Texas when it was a republic. They're all kind of useless intellectuals on the frontier. Uh, they, yeah, the Dutch. That's what they call it. The they Dutch, call them the in the Civil War. And they, they had a log cabin, and they would hold their philosophical debates entirely in Latin. They were called de la <laughs> And the Comanches, whom the, who were more friendly with the Germans, who, who didn't want to exterminate them the way the Southerners did, uh, would show up and listen in because it sounded like Spanish, which was the lingo franca of, of the Comanche Indians. So, uh, so I do think, you know, I, I guess I'm a transatlanticist in the sense that the 18th century was kind of cool because if you were educated at all, you know, French was the lingua franca. Uh, you could go to Stockholm, to St. Petersburg, you know, to Montevideo, to Mexico City, into New York and people spoke French, right? Uh, so there's something to having a 
a, a common language and culture. Now it's, it's uh, English. Uh, uh, so, so far, uh, Sam Huntington, I think, has been proven wrong about indigenization. He thought that English language use would decline. It, 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 it doesn't appear to be declining it's just because it's useful having a single global language. It'll, it'll, it'll decline when America is no longer the biggest kid on the block. That's no, I happens. think that's, that's right. If you look at like the ancient Middle East, they all spoke Sumerian long after this, you know, for 200 years after mm -hmm. the Sumerians have been crushed. But then they switched to Assyrian or whatever. It would be useful to have a dead language lying around. And next time, if we ever get another crack at a constitution, we should consider putting it in a dead language. So we don't, we don't have things like, uh, uh, what, what is that law? What is that, that interpretation you just mentioned of the uh, uh, disparate impact, which is totally, <laughs> totally insane, which doesn't require intent? Why well, I went to law school and became a total constitutional atheist because uh, uh, these great legal scholars I studied with uh, would dash back from class to look at like what the latest Supreme Court ruling was. And I thought, like, well, why are we studying this stuff in class if uh, the law is like what they just said three hours ago? <laughs> because you need to you need to be able to make an alibi. No, I, I mean, I, well, I guess it's kind of it's kind of like Pentecostalism, where everyone now can have charismatic gifts and everybody can be a prophet now, right? But but you know, <laughs> the the idea of having a fixed constitution. <laughs> I just got that. That's great. It's like the age of prophecy ended with the ratification of the first 10 amendments or the reconstruction amendments. And, uh, uh, but no, we have an apostolic legal system. <laughs> well, realistically, I mean, the constitution is as good as, as any written constitution can be. Like it, no matter how you, no matter how well you phrased it out, you could you could write out everything in explicit terms. They'd still do what they're doing because that's the whole point. Like you wield power, you you you're gonna do what you want, but you find like and I guess the purpose of law school these days is to figure out how you can excuse your behavior in terms that like give the illusion of continuity with the Constitution, right? Like how how am I gonna explain disparate impact in terms that make you know to cover it with the barest fig leaf, which is like what they did with Roe, you know, and and, and why. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I, 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 look, I think Napoleon Bonaparte got it right. He said a constitution should be brief and vague, you know. <laughs> in practice, the more detailed it gets, the more they just circumvent it with some kind of uh, rationalization. Yeah, that, that, that is a, there is a lot of people who get caught up in the, the dead end of thinking that the, the piece of paper uh, uh, does something. It, it, I mean, it, it gives you a leg to stand on. Uh, in, in the courts, uh, to some extent, I I, I don't think uh, I'm I'm very thankful for the Second Amendment. I'll just say that much. Well, I'm uh, uh, as I, I say as, as I get older, I become more of a pluralist in in the sense that I think if you don't have social checks and balances and social division of labor and separation of powers, then you're you're just screwed. It doesn't matter what the formal government is. Uh, and conversely, you can have a terrible constitution, formal constitution, but if you have like, you know, powerful unions and guilds and cities and, 
and counties and you know uh, colleges and so on and and they have high degrees of autonomy and they can't invade each yeah. other's territory then you can have like the worst constitution in the world doesn't doesn't make that much of a difference yeah the, I mean the Roman constitution didn't didn't really exist but it worked fine up until those social bonds like because of scale again also because of scale those social bonds began to break down and the Roman constitution goes out the window and the same thing happened with us like as soon as as it, it, it was a gra- it was a more gra- it was a pretty gradual process it probably it started in like the middle of the 19th century until you know until now we, we just too much scale so the social bonds that made America America broke down and now there is there is effectively no constitution you have an administrative state all that's left like to protect us is Federalism is a concept, not like the, the law itself, but just the, the states are still powerful enough to to resist the administrative state to some extent. Will they be in 15, 20 years? I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm skeptical because I think that really the difference between a red state and a blue state is simply the urban share of the population. Yes, yes. Right? Just the amount of, the amount of cities. Yeah. yeah. And long term uh, – you know, the truly rural is being depopulated. Now, there could be resistance from the exurbs where most of the working class lives now. And I think that's going to be the, so it's not like, you know, I, I read the the mainstream press, which is to say the democratic press, and it's the city versus <laughs> the country. Like it's these people up in the hollers of Appalachia, you know, with their stills. Uh <laughs> It's basically kind of, you know, like the the outer suburbs and exurbs was the working class lives because they can't afford to live downtown. Uh, and then there's the downtown and the inner suburbs. And I think that's the new pattern. And the generalized, universalized wasp or Puritan, whatever you want to call it, culture, which tends to be assimil- the college students of all ethnicities assimilate to it, wherever they're from in the world or in the U.S. So that's going to be the kind of the elite culture. The working class culture, they used to be quite distinct regionally. Like I remember meeting swamp Yankees in Maine in the 19... It's a totally different rural culture from the South or the Midwest. But I, I think it's all becoming kind of Southern... Yes, yeah. Isn't it? All around the country now. I'm the, I've noticed this and I... I uh, but I, I, you know, I'm not well traveled enough to ever make this bold proclamation like you just did. Yeah, I, well, just I, in I was living in New York in the 1990s, and the biggest crowd that had ever assembled in uh, in, in in Central Park came to hear Garth Brooks, a country musician. So country music is kind of the universal, or at least it was. I, I don't. It kind of went downhill, didn't it? It became sort of pop music. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Mon- yeah. Monster Jam, uh, the Monster Truck Rally, sold like eighty thousand seats in uh, just not too far from New York. So I mean, I mean, there's definitely yeah. an oppositional culture. So uh, maybe y'all can explain to me. I think it's like passive aggressive resistance against the university snobs, but all the working class people in Austin have these giant Ford El Dorados. <laughs> They're like 30 feet long. You know, the real the real test here would be like Nassau County. Because, you know, Long Island had like their, you know, they have like their own, like, uh, 
Um, Long Island, uh, I'd say Nassau County. I think that's most of uh, Long Island. Um, you know, they, they that's where they build lots of, uh, uh, I don't know if they still do, but they used to build a lot of our military machines there. Yeah. And uh, now that is a, uh, they voted Trump in, in 2020. I think it's get, even getting more red. And, you know, and it, they have kind of their homegrown uh, Republican thing there with with the Italians and stuff. You know the answer, even if you don't know Bog Beef. Yeah. Uh, I, it's something you said you said we were talking about yesterday. What happened was you had the the mono like the monoculture that developed with mass communication meant that it was like being it's like being in prison, right? We're all in we're all in jail, and what do you do in prison? You join a gang, right. and if, so if you're not part of that group, all you can do is join the next largest group, and we're the last. We're the last culture standing. So everybody who's not a lib is going to become a, maybe not a redneck, but just like you see a lot of, co- people say you see a lot of Confederate flags in places like Pennsylvania. Well, yeah, I, I people, think if people, you go back to the David Hackett Fisher categories, Quakers are gone. The Cavaliers could not survive without their social base, without being like planters and then later on big landlords in the South. They're extinct more or less. Uh, so I think it comes down to Puritans versus rednecks and or borderers. Yeah. Uh, and this is why the central battle, I think, and I would side with the borderers just because I think the the Puritans will destroy uh, North American society if, if they try to govern it <laughs> from the universities and a few cities. It just can't work. Uh, not that the border. If they try to govern it ex cathedra. Exactly. Uh, but it's going to come down to how many people go to college. Yes. Because college That's- is essentially indoctrination now. It's not, it's not skills. And you're going to get one outcome if 60% of everybody goes to college, and, and that's the Puritans win. And if we can actually get fewer people going to college, and the, according to the Federal Reserve, uh, uh, <laughs> a third to a half of jobs – that are now occupied by people with college diplomas don't need any education beyond high school. Yeah, this 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 is the this is the heart of it. The, you know, there's this uh, I don't know uh, I, I'm not super schooled on, but Turchin has this uh, uh, elite over production thing. But and, you know the base the basic idea is just that these people. And, and by the way, like they are they're like it's getting like more egregious. There's like straight up, just not failing people now just because they can keep, keep the cash well, coming getting, in. And getting stuff rid like. of SATs, getting rid of all mm-hmm. qualifications. This is, this is, this is the reason why my granny's, you know, one room schoolhouse test was harder than the SOLs in the nineties. Because if think about when she was in 40 in 46, what percentage of people went and finished high school? Not not nearly as many because probably you just didn't need to no. if, if you were doing certain things. So what that means is the average intelligence or whatever, however you want to measure it, of a, of a high school graduate is going to go down because you're going to be graduating people who, who weren't, wouldn't have done it in the past. Well, now we treat college like high school. So what does that mean? Well, I've never looked at the numbers, but I almost guarantee that if like, if you did I look at like essay IQ testing whatever of college graduates in the 60s versus today like the 60s ones are going to be way higher because you're you're educating a lot of people who simply well, you, would you, not you have see this you see this in in writing and op-eds and novels things like that so in the 60s and 70s when you had like less than 10% of people went to college 
there really was kind of fairly highbrow New York Times, Wall Street Journal. They had the Saturday Evening Review, I remember, when I was young. Uh, not as many people read books, but they read smarter books because, you know, they were, they were part of an educational elite. And then everybody else, they were happy. They were like reading comic books and, you know, watching Milton Berle on television. And, <laughs> and fine. I'm not a snob. No, yeah, yeah. But, but so then, then uh, I, I turned 40 or 50 and it was actually the millennials, it's not the Zoomers. And they're no longer talking about going to see the Brecht revival of Mother Courage in Broadway or off-Broadway or, you know, like the new novel. They're talking about Star Wars. Yeah, well, like, you know, they're... they're Matthew Ecclesius, <laughs> people like this, they're all... Jet here? Did you know this guy? He's on the advice. Yes, we're very familiar oh with him. Oh, my God. Yes. Yeah, he's he, he's a worst. professor of comic book studies. Yeah. <laughs> really? Is that his job? No, I looked him up. He's, he's in Canada. He teaches at a college. He's published like one or two scholarly studies of comic books and Superman and Batman and stuff like that. It's like a parody of the year 2000, you know, from Laugh-In in 1968, right? Uh, yeah, I've, I've said this before. I was a little, when I was a little hick in the middle of nowhere before the internet took off, like I would go to the library and try to get books that I thought that smart people read, mm -hmm. like studied, and like I would try to read Descartes and things like that. But like, no, they don't care about that stuff anymore. They, they're, they're, they're uh... So I found out the other day that Cass Sunstein of Harvard Law wrote a book about the ethics of Star Wars, right? Oh. He's about my age. And I mean, I loved the Fantastic Four when I was 11, right? But uh, so, yeah. But, but, well, there, there's a real issue they have. I mean, so when you talk about things like the, cla the classics or classical music or, uh, you know, uh, books by uh, dead white men, they have that you know uh, i'm not exactly sure the mapping of it but like uh you know a lot of these these departments and stuff these people they're involved in this now it's like uh they have to like you know you're, we're seeing them overcompensate and make make fools of themselves like oh you know um i last year i, I was reading the ut uh classics department um sorry uh 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 like the recent studies they did they were it was all just like Suit, like woke politics, like you know, and I I feel for them. I don't think that they're. I think they're like, please don't bring the axe to us because we are basically like th there's some kind of this could be perceived as some kind of pro European, pro white, etc. Uh, you, they're you know they're openly saying like, well, if you if you like classical music, you're white supremacists, etc. They, there's a a real uh, a detention there uh, well, with well, that I, stuff. I have this kind of eccentric view, goes back to Goethe and, and the Romantics. And you do want to expand the canon beyond simply the Jewish and Christian canon and the Greek and Roman canon. So it's the 19th century. You had all the 19th century nationalists. They revive, you know, Icelandic Norse literature, Irish Gaelic mythology, all of that stuff, all to the better. Goethe had this idea of uh, the German poet, Goethe, Weltliteratur, world literature, where an educated person, just like in his day, you had to know the Romans and the Greeks, but you would have to know the Confucians and, you know, the great philosophers. But it was it was the elites of other civilizations. OK. Yeah. It was not members of particular ethnic groups in your society writing today. And so I saw like one curriculum somewhere uh, in the news uh, 
where African-Americans were, were represented all by contemporary living African-American novelists. And that's just like a jobs thing, yeah. right? That's yeah. just assigning your own books. You know, I mean, I'm all in favor of uh, having people study the Confucian classics and, and read the Mahabharata along with the, uh, the you know, the Iliad and, and uh, the Aeneid. Uh, but I, I just, well, but again, see, I think a lot of this curriculum stuff is about, uh, it's just the new form of ethnic patronage, but the recipients of the patronage are the college-educated overclass of minority groups that the, the uh, non-Hispanic white overclass, so to speak, just wants as a dependence. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a great book that describes that. that, 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 that you know, they have those uh, Jack and Jill society and stuff where the, you know, you, they sort of take you out of the uh, normal black culture and put you, uh, put, put you apart. You still like, uh, I, I like to some extent, uh, uh, Jim Clyburn. He's like, you know, he's, he's like, he's almost 80. He's almost 90. And he is like an old school. I'm not saying he does anything for me. I mean, he's, he's basically a crook, but this kind of like, uh, uh, old school crook, uh, to some extent. Uh, now he, he's got a lot of weird things going on, but, but, but yeah, I mean, and obviously some of that is protected by like basically the civil rights act there, there, you can openly do ethnic patronage uh or or you know patronage to all the, these groups which i just happen to vote democrat like 90 okay but so, but so here's the nightmare scenario <laughs> as far as i'm concerned uh what if at some point they say okay non-hispanic whites are now 40 percent or 35 or whatever instead of having what my friend uh, uh, eric kaufman calls asymmetric multiculturalism you get symmetric multiculturalism okay uh, so there's not, it's like whatever your, your categories percentage of the population is, they get so many Pulitzer prizes, so many mm-hmm. Ivy league, and so on. So, uh, uh, David Duke will be doling, doling out the, the goodies to, no, uh, but you, yeah, to just us. start thinking about the, the, uh, <laughs> uh, like who's going to represent, like get the Euro American novel prize of the year. Lebanon right? basically. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and and if and the time bomb underneath this is that the racial melting pot and, and cross ethnic melting pot is bubbling away. So if you look at uh, uh, Mexican Americans, there've been uh, studies of this by Richard Alba and others. They outmarry faster than the Germans and Poles and Italians in the Northeast did. And by the third or fourth, fifth generation, they no longer consider themselves Hispanics. They have, you know one Mexican grandparent or something until unless you have a system where this gives you a leg up with the small business administration or applying to college. And then you discover your, your ancient Cherokee ancestor or, you know, uh, your Japanese great grandmother or something like that. Uh, so that's I'm, all, that's all like taken to a total joke level in, in Australia. Is that right? <laughs> Yes, they, whenever you see they have like these Aborigine awards, every every person there they look, uh, they they they, they look like uh, they Blood look Swedish. Hair, blue eyes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, my, my my friend Richard Rodriguez, great Mexican American writer, opponent of affirmative action, working class background, uh, 
uh, almost completely Indian in descent. I mean, he's American Indian, uh, genetically, if you look at him, uh, uh, quite striking and, and handsome. Uh, he went to a writer's conference in Mexico City where all of the writers were conquistadors. They were blonde and blue-eyed Castilians. Yeah. And they're really rude and racist. And one of these Mexican uh, literary intellectuals said, you know, in Mexico, we do not have writers who look like you. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, th th this is this, this you know, they, <laughs> they have this thing in America we call everything white supremacist, whatever. Uh, there's a lot of places in Latin America, South America, where white supremacy is like the, the active ideology. Yeah. Like, yeah. like if you, if you, if you get your, your, your son married off to a white Really, that, that's like a, you know, it, it's, uh, I mean, it, it, it would be very shocking. It'll be very weird to see this, this see this, this hit America where, uh, I, I don't know. It, it's, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> we also, we also see all these absurd, like whenever there's like, uh, any kind of one of these white extremist groups get caught up, a lot of them are, they're not, uh, they're not the whitest people in the world. I mean, because you, you do have, well, that's these, true. These the, the proud boys guy isn't he is spent. Yeah. Yeah, and and then when you go to the 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 diversity meetings and stuff, you just see people that are uh, that are uh, uh, you know double barrel last names and you know super white. It, it's funny because these are all these 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 class contradictions which do exist. I know people. There's a lot of people feel like you're dodging the question, all this kind of stuff when you when you say this stuff. But I mean, it 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 really is like that. Well, I think I think in a way to get back to the the earlier theme, I think things are simplifying very rapidly. So what was a very kaleidoscopic country uh, a generation or two ago, I think it's now becoming very, very simplified. You're going to have the blue city states and the, the managerial professional elites are going to have a, the same culture everywhere in Austin and Atlanta, New York, anywhere, Miami, eventually. Uh, and then a few miles outside of town where it's cheaper, you're going to get this mixed race, you know, melting pot working class, which will be mostly white, quote unquote, and Hispanic. Uh, but it includes more and more African-Americans and, and Asian-Americans as well. And, and this will, uh, so you'll have two melting pots. That's my view. Uh, the, the ethnic groups, in the, the classes of foreign ethnic groups, because, you know, immigrants come from different classes of the same country. Mm -hmm. the, the highly skilled ones who are skilled at academic work will have their own kind of university melting pot. And then I think the larger working class will have its own separate melting pot. In, and we see this with uh, educational polarization in groups. So the, uh, the Hispanics and the Asian Americans who don't go to college, uh, the working class uh, members of those those uh, groups tend to be more socially conservative, more populist than the uh, ones who go to college and learn that they're victims of, you know, whatever. Uh, and I, so I think that's going to be the problem. The problem is not going to be whites versus blacks versus Hispanics. It's going to be uh, the top versus the bottom. The insiders versus the outsiders. We just hit two hours, so I've got I've got to close you out. You've been very very generous with your time. The uh, it, it, this has been fantastic. So what what can you? Is there anything else you can tell us about how this conflict will play out? Uh, I, I know a lot of people would, um, 
you know, if you you know, if you look at the Civil War, the guys with the cities won. Um, are, are 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 we gonna? Uh, are we sort of? Uh, well, we'll, we'll take it from a, a third person view. So, uh, from a nonpartisan view, how do you how do you see this playing out? Well, I uh, uh, have you got five minutes? I can I can. Oh, we we got all the time in the world. I just yeah, I just you, you can edit it. <laughs> so, so a few weeks. I was just reading all of this stuff about the new Civil War and all of this stuff, and I had ancestors on both sides, uh, and. A friend of mine, Thomas Dish, a great science fiction writer and poet and horror novelist, uh, died uh, in the 2000s. Uh, in the 90s, he asked for my advice on doing a novel on the Second American Civil War. Uh, and my initial advice, he never, he never wrote the novel, uh, but my initial advice was it would be over very quickly because of the, the working class folks and the exurbs with their guns and, you know, the, they control the food and the factories and all of this, I've now changed my mind. And the reason is uh, uh, about half of the U.S. population lives within like 200 miles of an ocean. And the other half lives pretty much within a, a walking distance of a river. Uh, so, so if you th think about the U.S., we see this big map and the big interior and the heartland. But in fact, uh, Small towns, big cities, uh, even rural areas tend to be along inland waterways or along the coasts. Uh, and so if you're rebel militia uh, against the cities, uh, they're going to have real problems communicating with each other across the Rocky Mountains and the, uh, the Sierras with the, the enemy controlling the satellites and, and the drones. And the thing that my Confederate ancestors forgot that my Union ancestors took advantage of is the South is split right in the middle by the Mississippi River, right? <laughs> As the, the Battle of Vicksburg showed, you know, the uh, Ozarks and the Appalachians have the, the river going between them. So, uh, and the final thing about the food and the supplies, uh, well, and I don't think they intended this, but the coastal blue city elites have moved most of our manufacturing to other countries where it can't be seized by like the, uh, the Lexington and Concord people in the next civil war or revolution. So they can import food, you know, what, as long as they control the Navy. So, uh, so I, at this point, uh, if there's a civil war, I think the, the blue state progressives win. Uh, they just, they starve out the, uh, uh, and there's just the, the logistics of having the rebel resistance uh, in just as a science fiction idea in Maine communicate with the ones in, you know, Indiana and communicate with the ones. I just don't, I, I don't see it. So you, you might, you must feel more confident about the war against the managerial elite. You've, you've written a book about it, uh, which people should pick up. It's on Amazon, Kindle, audio. There's an audio book. Uh, well, it's, it's a class war. It's not. And, and this is why the American Revolution and I, don't, and I think the Civil War, which was a war between the states. It was a war between regional elites. And the American Revolution was a war between uh, elites, you know, the provincial elites and, the, and, and London. Uh, so I think it's, it's totally the wrong model. The, the correct model is class wars. And there you have to look to 
these very divided uh, systems, uh, very oligarchic systems of Latin America. I have, I have an article in Persuasion about this uh, where, where they, they asked me to write about it. Uh, so I think America's future is more like Argentina, you know, in the, in the Peron days where you have uh, the elite, you have the Buenos Aires Jockey Club runs everything, uh, and the higher parts of the state and the military. And then you have uh, the small businesses, the campesinos, the descomisados, uh, and the lower ranking officers who tended to come from working class backgrounds. And they went into the military because it was their only avenue for upward mobility. So, so I see Juan Perón as our future uh, versus, versus the oligarchy. I don't see uh, battles uh, in, uh, you know, territorial battles with organized units. Battle with, with propaganda, with, with, with politics? Oh, yeah. If you want to use it as a metaphorical battle, just like, so when I say the new class war, it's not an actual war where, you know, it's like the French Revolution and you're guillotining people. Uh, it's a power struggle. Uh, and uh, so then there can be three outcomes. The out- one outcome is, uh, well, Louisiana is kind of like this under Huey Long, right? So one outcome mm-hmm. is the, uh, uh, the New Orleans oligarchy wins and just crushes the populists. Uh, Will this be like Ron DeSantis gets uh, uh, total control of, of his state and the federal government's unable to make him do stuff? But I, I, but I don't think I don't see how he gets total control of his. St- oh no! Oh, so sorry. Well, well, I, well I, what do you mean? I, I was trying to understand. What, what do you mean by the? the- well, DeSantis's opponents are the oligarchs. So if De, if DeSantis is more of a populist figure, he's more like Hugh Long without the gangster connections. Right. Uh, uh, so so that's one option. The other is the Huey Long, Donald Trump, you know, uh, Ma and Paul Ferguson option where you do get an outsider demagogue, usually from the middle class, who is a traitor to his class uh, and creates his own personal patronage network, which can last a couple of generations. I mean, there was a long dynasty with Earl and with his son, Russell, uh, that lasted up till the 90s. His son was was very powerful in Congress. Yeah, but uh, but at the end of the day, it just kind of dissipates, right? It's a personalistic system mm-hmm. and a clientelistic system. And the third option, which is the best, I think, is that you you use the victory of the outsiders to cre- institutionalize new, it's not just personal favors of like, do you know somebody at Mar-a-Lago? Uh, but you recreate something like the mass membership organizations in the past. You know, like the the unions and the church congregations and the the American Legion, and so that when the when the Bonapartist figure uh, fades away, when the charismatic figure fades away, there actually is a structure that can survive. And and the structure I have in mind is I was saying earlier, it's like uh, the party system that, that Van Buren helped create, and and it lasted for a century, and it democratized. The country really more than anything else, I think. Uh, so I think that's the least likely outcome. <laughs> but I think that's the one, you know, we, we should be giving more thought to. Now, there's some folks on on the new right, which has various schools, 
they seem to have this Caesarist or Bonapartist fixation where uh, I'm thinking of like the Chronicles people and uh, some of the mega people uh, where you just, uh, they, they use this term, what is it? Rage, remove all government employees. Retire all government employees. Yeah, that's, 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 yeah. From, uh, that's from Curtis Jarvin, who we, we've had on the show and I, I, I'm very friendly with. Well, okay, but if you do that, in a country of 330 million people, you're not going to get ordinary people to replace. I mean, they're basically, even if you leave the military out, there's like a million or a million and a half government employees and contractors. So who is going to have the list of like the plum book now that the, it's the presidential appointees book. Uh, I think there's 4,000 names, which is a tiny little compared to like two and a half million uh, civil servants, soldiers, and uh, contractors. Uh, you're just going to get rid of all of these tenured Democrats and replace them with a bunch of K Street corporate lobbyists, right? So, mm-hmm. so I don't think that's going anywhere. I think uh, you have to decentralize power away from Washington and outside of the formal government. And what you want is not like some great super genius technocrat who will come in. Did, didn't Yarvin say at one point he thought Eric Schmidt would be great as a Singaporean dictator? Yes. Is that yes. correct? Did he say that? <laughs> yes, it's, it's true. It's true. Eric Schmidt is the chair of my board at New America, the think tank I co-founded. I like Eric. Uh, I have some <laughs> disagreements with him, but I would not want him to be... <laughs> <laughs> the neo-reactionary monarch of the United States. That's that's just madness. Well, um, it, the, I mean, so this... Noted, noted right-wing corporation, Google. Well, uh, we still love you, Curtis, but the, uh, the this this is a... Ch- so this is the, the, the Praetorian Guard problem, right? Yeah. And, you know, in, in history, I don't, I, don't, I don't think the Praetorian Guard was ever beaten. You just have to, I guess, the state just degenerated past that point, right? Well, well, there's, a, there's always been this kind of Tory view of history, like with, uh, and it's kind of Catholic too, Chesterton and Belloc, that the Middle Ages was an improvement over the Roman <laughs> Empire. I, I do not believe that. You, you you can measure people's femurs; they get they get no, much shorter. No, no that, that's true. But but hear me out. So their argument was that uh, yeah, they had like safety and you know higher incomes and so on. You know, under the Chinese Empire or the Roman Empire, but as it decayed, the cities, and remember, before there was a Roman Empire, there were all these local kingdoms and city-states, Right. and gradually they recover their independence in the, in the late Middle Ages, and so you get Venice and Florence and Milan. And, and no, I, I, that is, that system that developed, my, one, of my, one of my favorite writers, Bruce Bueno de Mesquita, he's got a new book out where he talks about this. There, there is a very uh, a beautiful and, 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 and awesome uh, government. It's not a government because it's all these disparate things, but the way the church is integrated and, and all these things, that, I mean, it, that really, uh, I, I, some people say that that's what made Europe kings of the world, was that, that, that part, not the Roman Empire. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And uh, that's my problem with the, I think of them as Caesarists or Bonapartists, uh, you know, so the day after Eric Schmidt becomes dictator of the U.S. Uh, or Curtis Yarvin or whoever, uh, what has changed, right? Because 
like one set of you cases from DC is now there's another set. Okay. I, I got you. So, so in, in, instead there, there should be a, uh, 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 the decentralization. Yeah. I, I, if Germany so and, but, and Italy, I prefer as, to your, as European countries to Britain, which was centralized from the Norman invasion onwards is over centralized, always has been. And same with France which uh, got more and more centralized over time. And the reason I like uh, Italy and Germany is, like the United States, they, they were loose confederations of separate societies in many ways, right? And they're like little, little city-states and bishoprics and little principalities and so on. And they, they, don't, they all date back to the 1870s, what unity they have. Uh, and same with the U.S., I mean, you know, Reconstruction. Uh, and I just don't want us turning into a country like, I mean, I mean, how sterile that would be, right? You know, like like France or London or Japan, where everybody who's everybody is in a few neighborhoods of a couple of cities. Yeah, he he's a like a, a, a more like a Prussian model, this cameralism thing, where every state is basically essentially a business. Uh, he does favor this, like uh, he does want it to break up into like lots of these little businesses, but uh, yeah. Well, well. Anyway, but uh, uh, I like the cameralists. But again, it's a problem of scaling it up. I mean, the cameralism worked in Prussia because it was like a very small, highly disciplined kingdom. So I get, I'm, I'm just I'm, I'm radically agnostic now because I think that most political philosophy consists of of falling in love with basically a city level set of institutions. <laughs> with Agreed. Sparta, Athens, you know, Berlin in 1700 or whatever. And then you just scale it up to half a billion people. So uh, so I think we need to think more in, I guess, in, in terms of empires in the pre-modern sense. Uh, I'm, I'm fascinated with the Hellenistic period just because nobody ever does any movies about it or writes about it. And, and, you know, so you have the classical Greeks and then they skip ahead to the Romans and you have like this 400-year period of the Antigonids and the Seleucids and the Ptolemies fighting each other, and it's kind of pointless, destructive warfare. But the interesting thing that, that fascinates me about the Hellenistic period is, following the example of Alexander, they were syncretistic. They did not impose their religion on their subjects. So wherever, whatever land they conquered, they would simply slot themselves in replacing the pharaoh of Egypt or the king of Babylon or whatever. So, so the Ptolemies in Egypt, they were basically culturally Greek, I mean, at home. They just like the Raj in India. But once a year, they would go down to Memphis, and uh, the uh, Ptolemy would dress up as a pharaoh in 3,000-year-old costumes, and he couldn't speak Egyptian, but like went through the rites. Uh, the Seleucids went to Babylon and dressed up as the Babylonian priest king. And, uh, and the city-states, everywhere they went, these uh, supposedly autocratic emperors were greeted by the local city council, and they essentially signed a contract with him. You know, we will acknowledge you as emperor as long as you respect our customs and don't interfere with our elections. So we have, we have a quite a different idea. The truly centralized autocratic empires have been very rare in history. Yeah, Cleo, 
Cleopatra the the eighth, uh, uh, Julius Caesar's girlfriend, was the first one, first Ptolemaic uh, royal in in hundreds of years that even bothered to learn uh, the local language. Oh, well, that, that's yeah, that, that's just fascinating to me. And uh, uh, and the British were kind of like that when they were just gangsters, you know, up, up until like the the mutiny in the middle of the nineteenth century. And then it was all of the J.S. Mill people tried to anglicize them. And that's when you get, you know, the the Indian Congress and the revolts and all of that. So so I, I, I guess just to sum up, I'm, I'm just, I keep coming back to this theme. The U.S. is the third most populous country in the world. It's got a third of a million people, a third of a billion people, right? Uh, the only countries bigger than us are, are China and India, which will soon surpass uh, China. And then you have Nigeria, which is kind of a, I'm not sure it will exist 100 years from now. It's one of those post-colonial type things. Uh, but the, if you look at demographic projections, the U.S. alone will be bigger than all of uh, Europe. That's- there, there are like 2 million people in that county just west West of, of Austin, where, where I don't think that there's, uh, I don't even know what, what city that would be. There's like yeah. 12 million, and there's like 12 million people in like the all of Greece right now. Yeah. I mean, this, 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 this always just boggles my, like, there, there are minor states in the United States, and like, you know, Greece, and Greece has the Greek musicians, they have, they have Greek actors, they have Greek cinema, they, they have Greek music, they have Greek food, and there's only like 12 million of them. We, we, have, we have a lot of people. Well, and it's going the wrong way, unfortunately. Uh, uh, there used to be like local Texana bookstores and, you know, local Austin musicians and so on and, and writers. And they did not aspire to be national. Right. And, and you have to. Uh, uh, and we have this kind of centralized uh, media academic culture which is constantly looking for new sources of novelty from subcultures, right? Mm -hmm. So like hip hop starts off in Brooklyn or whatever, and then it becomes commercial. But after a certain point, you've just so sterilized everything that there, there are no new subcultures. I mean, maybe I'm too pessimistic. I remember about 30 years ago, uh, I came back to Austin from uh, DC and watched the local cable access channel. This is where Alex Jones got his start. Uh, and they had this documentary about uh, Mexican-American guys in South Austin who, to impress their girlfriends, dressed up as cowboys and bought... Uh, 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 pointed shoes? No, no, before the pointed shoes. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm blanking out. What, what's the German polka music uh, instrument from... The accordion? Accordions, yeah, because because uh, in Texas, Tejano music was a mix of German and Northern Mexican uh, culture, and in the 19th century, the Mexicans picked up the accordion and the polka beats from the Germans. They should have never gave them that, that accordion. Uh, <laughs> but I just I just <laughs> thought, well, that's amazing because no one at the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or Hollywood or whatever knows that there's like this 15-year-old Mexican-American kid in South Austin who's saving up his money to buy an accordion to impress his girlfriend. I just think that's great. 
but in a way, it was better that they didn't find it out because then it would all be commercialized and fake, and it would it would kill it. You know, it would sterilize it. My my hero, uh, uh, Hank Williams Sr. I mean, not my hero, my favorite my favorite artist, favorite musician of all time, Hank Williams. I mean, he essentially only only uh, performed in like with a two hundred square mile radius, uh, you know, in, in South Alabama and stuff. Uh, he he was happy uh, to to sell the rights to his music be, to be played in New York City or California, etc. Et, et yeah, so that's that's why I really think that instead of hoping that a dictator will save us or that we'll replace their people on the NSC with our people on the NSC, I mean that's okay. Uh, not the dictator part, but you know the NSC part. Uh, you 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 really want to. To make why not make Atlanta or San Antonio or you know whatever Sioux Falls like Athens or Sparta or yeah I mean it, that was kind of the 19th century dream right because they they would go to the Wyoming territory and they would have Athens Wyoming like Athens Paris Texas right and uh, uh, it's just it's sad if if you're in a country like uh, like Brazil I mean I know Brazil fairly there's like two cities. It's Rio and, and uh, Sao Paulo. This is the worst part of, uh, of uh, English politics, by the way, is that every single person with any power in that country is in, like, uh, you know, driving distance from each other. They all went to the exact same high school, that Eaton Academy or whatever. Oh, it's even, and, it's even worse in France. I, I was uh, Really? Yeah, the, the French government had me go on a tour of France uh, about 20 years ago, and they were very proud of their decentralization initiative. So they got a ticket for me on their high-speed train from uh, Paris to Lyon. And I was to meet the head of their decentralization initiative in Lyon, who turned out, took the same train from Paris that I did. Because even though he was in charge of Lyon's decentralization, he lived in Paris. (laughs) He commuted back and forth. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God! The countries of France and Germany are essentially um, the end game of these these things, where you know they're they're uh, they destroyed a lot of uh, uh, different cultures to create these these countries. Yeah, so there is something to the fear of the anti-federalists about consolidationism, uh, you know. So I, I I'm in favor. I go back and forth. I mean, generally, uh, as I say, I'm in, like an American Hamiltonian nationalist uh, simply because my Confederate ancestors declared war on the second major industrial power on the earth without having any factories of their own. So they should have thought about that. Uh, But at the same time, well, and also I think if, if the U S had been disunited and if the South had won its independence, Texas would have broken off. I mean, there'd be like, you know, five or six or seven countries and it was now the U S uh, which culturally might have been better. That would have been awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but on the other hand, the world would be ruled today by German militarists or Russian militarists. And, you know, the first man on the moon would have been a so Russian. What? It's ruled, today it's ruled by financiers. Like, the, that's not, I'm not sure that's any better. I don't know that things turned out better than it would have the Kaiser would have won World War One. Well, you know? back in, when I was a, 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 in my 20s in Washington, as a dinner party with uh, Gene Kirkpatrick, our UN ambassador, and various other, uh, at that point, neocon Democrats and Republicans. And I was kind of a, uh, 
an obnoxious young man. So uh, I asked them uh, rather presumptuously how long they thought the United States would last as a unit. And, and they had a serious conversation. And, and no, these were like leading neocons and you know, conservatives, moderate Republicans. None of them gave the U.S. more than like 200 years in the future. And when I asked them why, they thought it would break up on regional lines, uh, which I think th- things are running against at this point. But, uh, but that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you had these folks who uh, would never say that in public, but they thought, no, nah, it's too, and it's made it's kind of like it's too big. It's too big. Our, too big. our, our friend, our friend Tinksor, uh, or Malcolm, Malcolm Shayun, he, he, he likens to a American Sengoku period where, you know, you have this, uh, you have the, the, the Shogun and the emperor and they're both like on paper ruling the same area. And they, you know, they, they, but anyways, uh, you know, with the Hamiltonian thing, I can like, there's a version of America that I can see, like, I guess at its height in the night, I don't know. You know, I think of Fender guitars. I'm thinking Texas instruments. You think of Cadillac. We, when we were we were really making the best stuff on earth. I mean, the I always talk about guitars because guitars is really the only thing that we do that I know of off the top of my head. I'm sure there's other things like scuba equipment or something that we do better than every anybody else in the world. Well, I I, uh, I gave an answer kind of like that. The State Department called me in some time ago and uh, they said, "Well, we want your advice. You know, our embassies in all these countries in Latin America." in Asia and so on, uh, they're constantly facing this snobbery from the local ruling classes, you know, uh, who will say, oh, the United States has no culture. They have Mm -hmm. no great opera like Italian and German opera and no great soulful novels like the Russian novelists, like Tolstoy and Dusky. So I said, okay, well, first of all, A, ignore them. I mean, these are people like in Buenos Aires, right? Uh, Who are they to complain to us? Uh, about <laughs> Argentine opera, give me a break. But but then my practical advice was, see, so the State Department wanted to say, well, like what kind of opera musicians and poets and all this can we advertise in our embassies? And I said, send Honda, you know, send uh, motorcycles, right? I wish I thought of the Fender guitars, right? Send like cheap Donna Karen fashions. Uh, and I can guarantee you the children... Uh, in some cases, the wives and spouses of all of these snobbish diplomats who are sneering at America will line up to look at the American products, you know, at least back when we had really good, you know, products. Uh, the great the great genius of American industry was it was mass production for mass consumers, for working class people, right? It was not boutique, craft, sophisticated production, which is what most... Most uh, production has been throughout history. If, and if you wanted to be chauvinistic about it back then, you could have said, okay, send them a Beethoven record, send them some Kurosawa films, send them yeah. a fine Italian wine and say, you know what? All that shit's ours now. Yeah. We, yeah. We, we, we took it. It's, it's all belongs to us. You're right. We don't have to do that. We don't have to make an opera. We, the, the people who make operas, they work for us now. Yeah. So, uh, but, but this is my problem with uh, a lot of the conservative, cultural conservatives as well, because their idea of Western history is kind of compressed into the 19th and early 20th centuries, I think, you know, and uh, if it's going to be really expansive, you know, uh, I'll give you an example just because they've always treated me very badly. 
So why not? <laughs> uh, it, it's the new Criterion. Have you ever read that magazine under Hilton Kramer? I've seen it. Yeah, that was it's like the West to them is minor British novelists between 1860 and 1930. I mean, that's, you know, Evelyn Auburn Waugh and people like that. Evelyn yeah. Uh, and, uh, uh, and I, well, I won't go into, I won't name names, but there, every 10 years or so, some donor decides to found a university program or a new university that will teach Western civilization, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and my heart's with them against the woke stuff. Uh, but most of what we think of as American culture in the West, not you guys, uh, it was essentially invented by Northerners between 1920 and 1970, right? So like the whole cult of the founding fathers, I was reading about this the other day. People didn't say founding fathers in the 19th century. Uh, and they didn't pay that much attention to them. Now, the parties did. The Democrats would have their Jefferson-Jackson day. And, yeah, your, your regional ones were important. Like, they talked a lot about George Washington, yeah. Thomas Jefferson, James Madison in Virginia. Yeah. But it wasn't like they loved John Adams in Virginia in the, you know, in the 1800s. So, but this all picks up during uh, World War II because you have to explain what we're fighting for and democracy and all of that. Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, who's a big hero of, of this kind of Western civilization, right? Uh, my great-great-grandfather was, as I said, was a founding dean of SMU, very well read around 1900. Uh, I inherited a first edition of the English translation of Tocqueville uh, from 1838. Uh, it had never been opened, he never read it. <laughs> And it was right next to uh, Harriet Martineau's Travels in the United States of America. So I, I think there was no new translation new, uh, uh, or new edition of Tocqueville until like World War One. He was thought of as just, there were like Dickens and Martineau and Tocqueville toured America and had interesting things to say. So you just have to bear in mind uh, if you look at, at the philosophy classes I took when I was an undergrad, it's only later that I learned that this was basically the imperial German curriculum from the 1890s and the 1900s when uh, uh, the American early American professors uh, studied in Germany. So think about it. Were you taught, I, mean, I don't know if you ever took your philosophy classes, but we have the Greeks, the Athenians, right? And mm. then you skip to the Germans, Yes. <laughs> right? So there's like, we don't have the pre-Socratics. We don't have the, the post-Athenians. We don't have Epicurus. We don't have the Stoics, at least the way I, they skipped over that. So you go from Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato, and then you skip to Kant and Hegel and... Wait, the, right? uh, the, the just war guy comes next. You need him. Yeah. So uh, that's, and and, and it's, it's very anti-Latin, anti-Catholic tradition. Because right. they leave out all all Christian theologians, Catholic or Protestant. They they leave out most of Italian and French and Spanish literature. So uh, so this I'm just skeptical about you know this kind of uh, great books approach uh, because in, in defending the canon, it's true I would rather read like Plato's dialogues than you know. Uh, 
you know, whatever contemporary novel of somebody of a particular category. Uh, we think about Sir Walter Scott. I love Sir Walter Scott. You know, Ivanhoe is my favorite. Yeah, he's a great I've poet. Read a million times. Yeah, well, no, no, the South too, because yeah, what what they did was they threw out Wilmore, William Gilmore Sims and all these Southern writers. Uh, in Austin, there was a Lanier High School, uh, and they changed the name because he had uh, been just like a infantryman in the Confederacy, right? <laughs> so there's no longer a Lanier High School. Uh, and and I grew up with my Southern grandmother uh, reading The Marshes of Glynn by Sidney Lanier. So, so even the American canon, that crystallized in the 1940s when you got professional English departments and uh, uh, American studies. And it was basically the New England Yankee tradition, right? You, you have Hawthorne and Melville. Uh, and then uh, there was kind of a, a, a wave of Southerners like uh, Robert Penn Warren and, and uh, others who went up and taught in the Ivy League. For some reason, uh, in fact, Kenneth Rexroth has a great book on the history of American poetry. And he says there was a Jewish Trotskyist Southern Agrarian Alliance that took over <laughs> the Ivy League English departments between the 1940s and the 1970s. It's true. So you had these Southerners like Cleanth Brooks and uh, uh, Robert Penn Warren and then you had like the, you know, Russian Jewish first generation uh, intellectuals and they consciously toppled. They then wiped out. See, it's like ethnic gang wars, isn't it? It's like gangs in New York. <laughs> so, so, yeah. so they threw out uh, the fireside poets of New England, <laughs> like Longfellow and Whittier, right? <laughs> many such cases, many, much, much displacement. So, no, That's why I have a certain certain distance from all of these controversies because so what what the afrocentrists and uh uh you know other groups they're now tossing out i guess william faulkner and he'll go next and so on but the people who put william faulkner in the canon tossed longfellow out so yeah, yeah. You, you ripped the whirlwind there you go. Yeah. I mean, this is that, that that's this they're getting yeah they're getting canceled whatever it's but, uh, but see this this wouldn't, this wouldn't be a problem if you had multiple schools, multiple curriculums, multiple publishers, I, I guess where I differ is I don't think they, they can necessarily be regional at this point. I think, I think they may be religious. Like a, uh, I, I can see you having like a traditional Catholic subculture that has its own, I mean, well, they've always had their own, you know, publishers and, and novelists and poets and the evangelicals, Maybe uh, the uh, I don't think whites are actually an ethnic group. That's my problem with with white nationalism. It's just like a category. Well, uh, I mean, so th there is a certain amount of like they they will create it if they if there's enough um, uh, pressure. Like you know, like like you know, they're, they're no. But I, 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 if we're in San Quentin, it, it, it works out. Yes. No. 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 I, well, yeah. If you tell everyone they're non-Hispanic whites, eventually you're going to get non-Hispanic food, non-Hispanic sports, and and uh, so on. There's a comedian named Martin Mull who poked fun at all of this. Yeah. In, in the '90s, he wrote a great book about white people and their peculiar culture and customs. 
like they like to play golf and they like potato salad, you know, and things like that. So, but, th- but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something more organic and, and, and it can be transracial because real cultures, uh, you know, jazz, it starts off with one group, but then be developed by, by anybody. But that's my, that's my nightmare that eventually we will have state enforced non-Hispanic white nationalism. Uh, but it will be one of four or five or six different state-enforced Soviet-style. One of the legal prison gangs that you yeah, can, no, that's you can it. join that's in the it. United States, yeah. 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 Well, they're, already, they're trying to create the MENA category. Do you know what that is? Yeah, Middle East, North African. Yeah, that's... that's a, yeah. yeah so, so I found out from my DNA test that, as I suspect, I'm, <laughs> I'm one-eighth Jewish, right? So if So that means I can be a MENA, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I was misassigned at birth as a yeah. non-Hispanic white. I am, in fact, uh, a non-white Middle Easterner under the one-drop theory. So, uh, well, I, I'm in it through one-drop. I, I took the, that. Te- I got my test results in today, and I was uh, 0.5% Ashkenazi Jew. 0.5%. Well, did now, I, yeah, he, he's got the drop. It's there. Yeah, there's a little, <laughs> yeah. little Jew, Jewish in everybody. Uh, well, there, there were Confederate Jews. Did, did you did you pass the test the first time? I flunked my first <laughs> DNA test. I was I, so- I, it was a waste of money. I should not have done it. It, it was, uh, you know, it was like, well, yeah, you're you're from, uh, you know, Britain, basically. Um, <laughs> well, I, I, uh, I did the Ancestry.com size. Spit, you spit saliva into a tube and mail it in. And then now you wait six weeks and they email you and they said, your test is illegible. Do it again. Mm. And I studied real hard, and I passed the second time. <laughs> I think that's a good place to wrap up. I've had a I've had a great time. Thank thank you for you've been very generous for your time. That was excellent. I've I've got to try to shill something, uh, which uh, that would be the new class war saving democracy from the managerial elite. Michael Land, thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Glad to be here. It's a pleasure. Someday the mountain might get up, but the law never will.